We now continue with the glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. Part 2 In the second place, it was becoming that the Son should preserve Mary from sin as being his mother. No man can choose his mother, but should such a thing ever be granted to any one, who is there who, if able to choose a queen, would wish for a slave? If able to choose a noble lady, would he wish for a servant? Or, if able to choose a friend of God, would he wish for his enemy? If, then, the Son of God alone could choose a mother according to his own heart, his liking, we must consider, as a matter of the course, that he chose one becoming a God. St. Bernard says that the Creator of men, becoming man, must have selected himself a mother whom he knew became him. And as it was becoming that a most pure God should have a mother pure from all sin, he created her spotless. St. Bernardine of Siena, speaking of the different degrees of sanctification, says that the third is that obtained by becoming the mother of God, and that this sanctification consists in the entire removal of original sin. This is what took place in the Blessed Virgin. Truly God created Mary such, both as to the eminence of her nature and the perfection of grace with which he endowed her, as became him who was to be born of her. Here we may apply the words of the Apostle to the Hebrews. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. A learned author observes that, according to St. Paul, it was fitting that our blessed Redeemer should not only be separated from sin, but also from sinners. According to the explanation of St. Thomas, who says that it was necessary that he who came to take away sins should be separated from sinners as to the fault under which Adam lay. But how could Jesus Christ be said to be separated from sinners if he had a mother who was a sinner? St. Ambrose says that Christ chose this vessel into which he was about to descend, not of earth, but from heaven, and he consecrated it a temple of purity. The saint refers to the text of St. Paul. The first man was of the earth, earthly, the second man from heaven, heavenly. The saint calls the Divine Mother a heavenly vessel, not because Mary was not earthly by nature, as heretics have dreamt, but because she was heavenly by grace. She was as superior to the angels of heaven in sanctity and purity as it was becoming that she should be, in whose womb a king of glory was to dwell. This agrees with that which St. John the Baptist revealed to St. Bridget, saying, It was not becoming that the king of glory should repose otherwise than in a chosen vessel, exceeding all men and angels in purity. And to this we may add that which the Eternal Father himself said to the same saint, Mary was a clean and an unclean vessel. Clean, for she was all fair, but unclean, because she was born of sinners. Though she was conceived without sin, that my son might be born of her without sin. And remark these last words, Mary was conceived without sin, that the divine son might be born of her without sin. Not that Jesus Christ could have contracted sin, but that he might not be reproached with even having a mother infected with it, who would consequently have been the slave of the devil. The Holy Ghost says that the glory of man is from the honor of his father, 
and a father without honor is the disgrace of the son. Therefore it was, says an ancient writer, that Jesus preserved the body of Mary from corruption after death. For it would have redounded to his dishonor had that virginal flesh with which he had clothed himself become the food of worms. For he adds, corruption is a disgrace of human nature, and as Jesus was not subject to it, Mary was also exempted, for the flesh of Jesus is the flesh of Mary. But since the corruption of her body would have been a disgrace for Jesus Christ, because he was born of her, how much greater would the disgrace have been had he been born of a mother whose soul was once infected with the corruption of sin? For not only is it true that the flesh of Jesus is the same as that of Mary, but, adds the same author, the flesh of our Savior, even after his resurrection, remained the same that he had taken from his mother. The flesh of Christ is the flesh of Mary, and though it was glorified by the glory of his resurrection, yet it remains the same that was taken from Mary. Hence the abbot Arnold of Chartres says, The flesh of Mary and that of Christ are one, and therefore I consider the glory of the Son as being not so much common to as one with that of his mother. And now if this is true, supposing that the Blessed Virgin was conceived in sin, though the Son could not have contracted its stain, nevertheless his having united flesh to himself which was once infected with sin, a vessel of uncleanness and subject to Lucifer, would always have been a blot. Mary was not only the mother, but the worthy mother of our Savior. She is called so by all the Holy Fathers. St. Bernard says, Thou alone wast found worthy to be chosen as the one in whose virginal womb the King of Kings should have his first abode. St. Thomas of Villanova says, Before she conceived, she was already fit to be the mother of God. The Holy Church herself attests that Mary merited to be the mother of Jesus Christ, saying, The Blessed Virgin, who merited to bear in her womb Christ our Lord, and St. Thomas Aquinas, explaining these words, says that the Blessed Virgin is said to have merited to bear the Lord of all, not that she merited his incarnation, but that she merited, by the graces she had received, such a degree of purity and sanctity that she could becomingly be the mother of God. That is to say, Mary could not merit the incarnation of the eternal word, but by divine grace she merited such a degree of perfection as to render her worthy to be the mother of God. According to what St. Augustine also writes, her singular sanctity, the effect of grace, merited that she alone should be judged worthy to receive a God. And now, supposing that Mary was worthy to be the mother of God, what excellency and what perfection was there that did not become her? asks St. Thomas of Villanova. The angelic doctor says that when God chooses any one for a particular dignity, he renders him fit for it. Whence he adds that God, having chosen Mary for his mother, he also by his grace rendered her worthy of his highest of all dignities. The Blessed Virgin was divinely chosen to be the mother of God, and therefore we cannot doubt that God had fitted her by his grace for this dignity and we are assured of it by the angel. For thou hast found grace with God, behold, thou shalt conceive. 
And thence the saint argues that the Blessed Virgin never committed any actual sin, not even a venial one. Otherwise, he says, she would not have been a mother worthy of Jesus Christ, for the ignominy of the mother would also have been that of the son, for he would have had a sinner for his mother. And now, if Mary, on account of a single venial sin, which does not deprive a soul of divine grace, would not have been a mother worthy of God, how much more unworthy would she have been had she contracted the guilt of original sin, which would have made her an enemy of God and a slave of the devil? And this reflection it was that made St. Augustine utter those memorable words that, when speaking of Mary for the honor of our Lord, whom he, she merited to have for her son, he would not entertain even the question of sin in her. For we know, he says, that through him, who it is evident was without sin, and whom she merited to conceive and bring forth, she received grace to conquer all sin. Therefore, as St. Peter Damian observes, we must consider it as certain that the incarnate word chose himself a becoming mother, and one of whom he would not have to be ashamed. St. Proclus also says that he dwelt in a womb which he had created free from all that might be to his dishonor. It was no shame to Jesus Christ when he heard himself contemptuously called by the Jews the son of Mary, meaning that he was the son of a poor woman. Is not his mother called Mary? for he came into this world to give us an example of humility and patience. But, on the other hand, it would undoubtedly have been a disgrace could he have heard the devil say, Was not his mother a sinner? Was he not born of a wicked mother who was once our slave? It would have even been unbecoming had Jesus Christ been born of a woman whose body was deformed or crippled or possessed by devils. But how much more would it have been so had he been born of a woman whose soul had once been deformed by sin and in the possession of Lucifer? Ah, indeed, God, who is wisdom itself, well knew how to prepare himself a becoming dwelling in which to reside on earth. Wisdom hath built herself a house. The Most High hath sanctified his own tabernacle. God will help it in the morning early. David says that our Lord sanctified this, his dwelling, in the morning early, that is to say, from the beginning of her life, to render her worthy of himself, for it was not becoming that a holy God should choose himself a dwelling that was not holy. Holiness becometh thy house. And if God declares that he will never enter a malicious soul, or dwell in a body subject to sin, for wisdom will not enter into a malicious soul, nor dwell in a body subject to sin. How can we ever think that the Son of God chose to dwell in the soul and body of Mary without having previously sanctified and preserved it from every stain of sin? For according to the doctrine of St. Thomas, the Eternal Word dwelt not only in the soul of Mary, but even in her womb. The Holy Church sings, Thou, O Lord, hast not disdained to dwell in the virgin's womb. Yes, for he would have disdained to have taken flesh in the womb of an Agnes, a Gertrude, a Teresa, because these virgins, though holy, were nevertheless for a time stained with original sin. 
But he did not disdain to become man in the womb of Mary, because this beloved virgin was always pure and free from the least shadow of sin, and was never possessed by the infernal serpent. And therefore St. Augustine says that the Son of God never made himself a more worthy dwelling than Mary, who was never possessed by the enemy or despoiled of her ornaments. On the other hand, St. Cyril of Alexandria asks, Who ever heard of an architect who built himself a temple and yielded up the first possession of it to its greatest enemy? Yes, says St. Methodius, speaking on the same subject, that Lord who commanded us to honor our parents would not do otherwise when he became man than observe it by giving his mother every grace and honor. He who said, Honor thy father and thy mother, that he might observe his own decree, gave all grace and honor to his mother. Therefore, the author of the book already quoted from the works of St. Augustine says, that we must certainly believe that Jesus Christ preserved the body of Mary from corruption after death. For if he had not done so, he would not have observed the law, which at the same time that it commands us to honor our mother, forbids us to show her disrespect. But how little would Jesus have guarded his mother's honor had he not preserved her from Adam's sin? Certainly that son would sin, says the Augustinian father Thomas of Strasbourg who, having it in his power to preserve his mother from original sin, did not do so. But that which would be a sin in us, continues the same author, must certainly be considered unbecoming in the Son of God, who, whilst he could make his mother immaculate, did it not. Ah, no, exclaims Gerson, since thou, the Supreme Prince, choosest to have a mother, certainly thou owest her honor. But now, if thou didst permit her, who was to be the dwelling of all purity, to be in the abomination of original sin, certainly it would appear that the law was not well fulfilled. Moreover, we know, says St. Bernardine of Siena, that the Divine Son came into the world more to redeem Mary than all other creatures. There are two means by which a person may be redeemed, as St. Augustine teaches us. The one by raising him up after having fallen, and the other by preventing him from falling. And this last means is doubtless the most honorable. He is more honorably redeemed, says the learned Suarez, who is prevented from falling, than he who after falling is raised up. For thus the injury or stain is avoided which the soul always contracts by falling. This being the case, we ought certainly to believe that Mary was redeemed in the more honorable way, and the one which became the mother of God, as St. Bonaventure remarks, for it is to be believed that the Holy Ghost, as a very special favor, redeemed and preserved her from original sin by a new kind of sanctification, and this in the very moment of her conception. Not that sin was in her, but that it otherwise would have been. The sermon from which this passage is taken is proved by Frazen to be really the work of the holy doctor above named. On the same subject, Cardinal Cusano beautifully remarks that others had Jesus as a liberator, but to the most blessed virgin he was a pre-liberator, 
meaning that all others had a Redeemer who delivered them from sin with which they were already defiled, but that the Most Blessed Virgin had a Redeemer who, because he was her son, preserved her from ever being defiled by it. In fine, to conclude this point in the words of Hugo of St. Victor, the tree is known by its fruits. If the lamb was always immaculate, the mother must also have been always immaculate. Such the lamb, such the mother of the lamb, for the tree is known by its fruit. Hence, this same doctor salutes Mary, saying, O worthy mother of a worthy son, meaning that no other than Mary was worthy to be the mother of such a son, and no other than Jesus was worthy son of such a mother. And then he adds these words, O fair mother of beauty itself, O high mother of the Most High, O mother of God. Then let us address this most blessed mother in the words of St. Ildefonsus. Suckle, O Mary, thy creature, give milk to him who made thee, and who made thee such that he could be made of thee. Part 3 Since then it was becoming that the father should preserve Mary from sin as his daughter, and the son as his mother, it was also becoming that the Holy Ghost should preserve her as his spouse. St. Augustine says that Mary was that only one who merited to be called the mother and spouse of God. For St. Anselm asserts that the Divine Spirit, the love itself of the Father and the Son, came corporally into Mary, and enriching her with graces above all creatures, reposed in her and made her his spouse, the Queen of heaven and earth. He says that he came into her corporally, that is, as to the effect, for he came to form of her immaculate body, the immaculate body of Jesus Christ as the archangel had already predicted to her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And therefore it is, says St. Thomas, that Mary is called the temple of the Lord and the sacred resting place of the Holy Ghost, for by the operation of the Holy Ghost she became the mother of the incarnate Word. And now had an excellent artist the power to make his bride such as he could represent her, what pains would she not take to render her as beautiful as possible. Who then can say that the Holy Ghost did otherwise with Mary, when he could make her who was to be his spouse as beautiful as it became him that she should be? Ah, no, he acted as it became him to act. For this same Lord himself declares, Thou art all fair, O my love, and there is not a spot in thee. These words, says St. Ildefonsus and St. Thomas, are properly to be understood of Mary, as Cornelius Alapide remarks, and St. Bernardine of Siena and St. Lawrence of Justinian assert that they are to be understood precisely as applying to her immaculate conception. Whence blessed Raymond Giordano addresses her, saying, Thou art all fair, O most glorious virgin, not in part, but wholly, and no stain of mortal, venial, or original sin is in thee. The Holy Ghost signified the same thing when he called this his spouse, an enclosed garden and a sealed fountain. My sister, my spouse, is a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed up. 
Mary, says St. Sophronius, was this enclosed garden and sealed fountain, into which no guile could enter, against which no fraud of the enemy could prevail, and who always was holy in mind and body. St. Bernard likewise says, addressing the Blessed Virgin, Thou art an enclosed garden, into which the sinner's hand has never entered to pluck its flowers. We know that this divine spouse loved Mary more than all the other saints and angels put together, as Father Suarez, with St. Lawrence Justinian and others assert. He loved her from the very beginning, and exalted her in sanctity above all others, as it is expressed by David in the Psalms. The foundations thereof are in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Sion above all the tabernacles of Jacob. A man is born in her, and the highest himself hath founded her. Words which all signify that Mary was holy from her conception. The same thing is signified by other passages addressed to her by the Holy Ghost. In the Proverbs we read, Many daughters have gathered together riches. Thou hast surpassed them all. If Mary has surpassed all others in the riches of grace, she must have had original justice, as Adam and the angels had it. In the Canticles we read, There are young maidens without number. One is my dove, my perfect one. In the Hebrew it is my entire, my immaculate one. Is but one. She is the only one of her mother. All just souls are daughters of divine grace, but amongst these Mary was the dove without the gall of sin, the perfect one without spot in her origin, the one conceived in grace. Hence it is that the angel, before she became the mother of God, already found her full of grace, and thus saluted her, Hail, full of grace, on which words St. Sophronius writes that, that grace is given partially to other saints, but to the Blessed Virgin all was given. So much so, says St. Thomas, that grace not only rendered the soul, but even the flesh of Mary holy, so that this Blessed Virgin might be able to clothe the eternal word with it. Now all this leads us to the conclusion that Mary, from the moment of her conception, was enriched and filled with divine grace by the Holy Ghost, as Peter of Celes remarks. The plenitude of grace was in her, for from the very moment of her conception the whole grace of the divinity overflowed upon her by the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Hence, St. Peter Damien says that the Holy Spirit was about to bear her off entirely to himself, who was chosen and pre-elected by God. The saint says, to bear her off, to denote the holy velocity of the divine spirit in being beforehand in making this spouse his own before Lucifer should take possession of her. Conclusion I wish to conclude this discourse, which I have prolonged by the limits of the others, because our congregation has this Blessed Virgin Mary precisely under the title of her Immaculate Conception for its principal patroness. I say that I wish to conclude by giving in as few words as possible the reasons which make me feel certain and which, in my opinion, ought to convince everyone of the truth of so pious a belief and which is so glorious for the Divine Mother, that is, 
that she was free from original sin. There are many doctors who maintain that Mary was exempted from contracting even the debt of sin. For instance, Cardinal Galatino, Cardinal Cusano, Ponti, Salazar, Carthenius, Novarino, Viva, De Lugo, Egidio, Dennis the Carthusian, and others. And this opinion is also probable, for if it is true that the wills of all men were included in that of Adam as being the head of all, and this opinion is maintained as probable by Jonet, Hebert, and others, founded on the doctrine of St. Paul contained in the fifth chapter to the Romans. If this opinion, I say, is probable, it is also probable that Mary did not contract the debt of sin, for whilst God distinguished her from the common of men by so many graces, it ought to be piously believed that he did not include her will in that of Adam. This opinion is only probable, and I adhere to it as being more glorious for my sovereign lady. But I consider the opinion that Mary did not contract the sin of Adam as certain, and it is considered so, and even as proximately definable as an article of faith, as they express it, by Cardinal Everard, Duval, Reynald, Locindia, Viva, and many others. I, I omit, however, the revelations which confirm this belief, particularly those of St. Bridget, which were approved of by Cardinal Turi Cremata, and by four sovereign pontiffs, and which are found in various parts of the sixth book of her revelations. But on no account can I omit the opinions of the Holy Fathers on this subject, whereby to show their unanimity in conceding this privilege to the Divine Mother. St. Ambrose says, Receive me not from Sarah, but from Mary, that it may be an uncorrupted virgin, a virgin free by glance from every stain of sin. Origen, speaking of Mary, asserts that she was not infected by the venomous breath of the serpent. St. Ephraim, that she was immaculate and remote from all stain of sin. An ancient writer, in a sermon found amongst the works of St. Augustine, on the words, Hail, full of grace, says, By these words the angel shows that she was altogether remark the word altogether, excluded from the wrath of the first sentence and restored to the full grace of blessing. The author of an old work called The Breviary of St. Jerome affirms that that cloud was never in darkness but always in light. St. Cyprian, or whoever may be the author of the work on the 77th Psalm, says, Nor did justice endure that the vessel of election should be open to common injuries, for being far exalted above others, she partook of their nature, but not of their sin. St. Amphilochius said, He who formed the first virgin without deformity also made the second one without spot or sin. St. Sophronius says, The virgin is therefore called immaculate, for in nothing was she corrupt. St. Ildefonsus argues that it is evident that she was free from original sin. St. John Damascene says that the serpent had never any access to this paradise. St. Peter Damien that the flesh of the virgin taken from Adam did not admit the stain of Adam. 
St. Bruno affirms that Mary is that uncorrupted earth which God blessed and was therefore free from all contagion of sin. St. Bonaventure, that our Sovereign Lady was full of preventing grace for her sanctification, that is, pres preservative grace against the corruption of original sin. St. Bernardine of Siena argues that it is not to be believed that he, the Son of God, would be born of a virgin and take her flesh, were she in the slightest degree stained with original sin. St. Lawrence Justinian affirms that she was prevented in blessings from her very conception. The blessed Raymond Giordano on the words, Thou hast found grace, says, Thou hast found a singular grace, O most sweet virgin, that of preservation from original sin, and many other doctors speak in the same sense. But finally, there are two arguments that conclusively prove the truth of this pious belief. The first of these is the universal concurrence of the faithful. Father Agidius of the Presentation sure assures us that all the religious orders follow this opinion, and a modern author tells us that though there are ninety-two writers of the order of St. Dominic against it, nevertheless there are a hundred and thirty-six in favor of it even in that religious body. But that which above all should persuade us that our pious belief is in accordance with the general sentiment of Catholics is that we are assured of it in the celebrated bull of Alexander the Seventh, Solicitudo Omnium Ecclesiarum, published in 1661, in which he says, This devotion and homage towards the Mother of God was again increased and propagated so that the universities having adopted this opinion, that is, the pious one, already nearly all Catholics have embraced it. And in fact, this opinion is defended in the universities of the Sorboni, Alacala, Salmanaca, Coimbra, Cologne, Mentz, Naples, and many others, in which all who take their degrees are obliged to swear that they will defend the doctrine of Mary's Immaculate Conception. The learned Pitavius mainly rests his proofs on the proof of this doctrine on the argument taken from the general sentiment of the faithful. An argument, writes the most learned bishop, Julius Torni, which cannot do otherwise than convince, for in fact, if nothing else does, the general consent of the faithful makes us certain of the sanctification of Mary in her mother's womb, and of her assumption in body and soul into heaven. Why, then, should the, not the same general feeling and belief on the part of the faithful also make us certain of her immaculate conception? The second reason, and which is stronger than the first that convinces us that Mary was exempt from original sin, is the celebration of her immaculate conception commanded by the universal church. And on this subject I see, on the one hand, that the Church celebrates the first moment in which her soul was created and infused into her body, for this was declared by Alexander the Seventh, in the above-named bull, in which he says that the Church gives the same worship to Mary in her conception, which is given to her by, her by those who hold the pious belief that she was conceived without original sin. On the other hand, I hold it as certain that the Church cannot celebrate anything which is not holy, according to the doctrine of the Holy Pope St. Leo, and that the Sovereign Pontiff, St. Eusebius, 
in the apostolic see the Catholic religion was always preserved spotless. All theologians with St. Augustine, St. Bernard, and St. Thomas agree on this point, and the latter, to prove that Mary was sanctified before her birth, makes use of this very argument. The Church celebrates the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin, but a feast is celebrated only for a saint. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin was sanctified in her mother's womb. But if it is certain, as the angelic doctor says, that Mary was sanctified in her mother's womb, because it is only on that supposition that the Church can celebrate her nativity, why are we not to consider it as equally certain that Mary was preserved from original sin from the first moment of her conception, knowing as we do that it is in this sense that the Church herself celebrates the feast? Finally, in confirmation of this great privilege of Mary, we may be allowed to add the well-known innumerable and prodigious graces that our Lord is daily pleased to dispense throughout the kingdom of Naples by means of the pictures of her immaculate conception. I could refer to many which passed, so to say, through the hands of the fathers of our own congregation, but I will content myself with two which are truly ad admirable. The Editor's Note these effects of the divine mercy have shown forth in a no less wonderful manner in France and elsewhere, especially in 1832 and during the following years, by means of the miraculous medal of which everyone has heard. Since the time when St. Alphonsus wrote this discourse, and the dissertations that one may read on the same subject in his other works, the devotion to Mary conceived without sin continued to grow throughout the Catholic world being sustained and favored more and more by the Holy See, and by the signal marks of her heavenly protection. Finally, yielding to the multiplied solicitations of the bishops, of the clergy, of the religious orders, of the reigning sovereigns, and of the laity, Pope Pius IX, during the pontifical mass celebrated in the Basilica of the Vatican, December 8, 1854, in the procence of the bishops, assembled from all parts of the world, solemnly pronounced the decree by which he defined as an article of faith that the Blessed Virgin Mary had been protected and preserved from every stain of original sin from the first instant of her conception, in accordance with the text the bull published the following day. This glorious event was hailed at Rome, as well as by the whole world, with extraordinary demonstrations of joy and gratitude, what pleasure, what delight must it have given in heaven to our saint, who, during his life here below, labored with so much zeal to bring about such a declaration, and who protested with an oath, as we see in a prayer that concludes this discourse, that he was ready to shed his blood in so beautiful a cause. Examples A woman came to a house of our little congregation in this kingdom, to let one of the fathers know that her husband had not been to confession for many years, and the poor creature could no longer tell by what means to bring him to his duty, for if she named confession to him, he beat her. The father told her to give him a picture of Mary Immaculate. In the evening, the woman once more begged her husband to go to confession, but he, as usual, turned a deaf ear to her entreaties. She gave him the picture. Behold, he had scarcely received it when he said, Well, 
when will you take me to confession, for I am willing to go. The wife, on seeing this instantaneous change, began to weep for joy. In the morning he really came to our church, and when the father asked him how long it was since he had been to confession, he answered, Twenty-eight years. The father again asked him what had induced him to come that morning. Father, he said, I was obstinate, but last night my wife gave me a picture of our blessed lady, and in the same moment I felt my heart changed, so much so that during the whole night every moment seemed a thousand years, so great was my desire to go to confession. He then confessed his sins with great contrition, changed his life, and continued for a long time to go frequently to confession to the same father. In another place, in the diocese of Salerno, in which we were giving a mission, there was a man who bore a great hatred to another who had offended him. One of our fathers spoke to him that he might be reconciled, but he answered, Father, did you ever see me at the sermons? No, and for this very reason I do not go. I know that I am damned, and but nothing else will satisfy me. I must have revenge. The father did all that he could to convert him, but seeing that he lost his time, he said, Here, take this picture of our blessed lady. The man at first replied, But what is the use of this picture? But no sooner had he taken it than, as if he had never refused to be reconciled, he said to the missionary, Father, is anything else required besides reconciliation? I am willing. The following morning was fixed for it. When, however, the time came, he had again changed and would do nothing. The father offered him another picture, but he refused it, but at length, with great reluctance, took it, when, behold, he scarcely had possession of it, then he immediately said, Now let us be quick, where is the Mostradati? And he was instantly reconciled with him, and then went to confession. Prayer Ah, my Immaculate Lady, I rejoice with thee on seeing thee enriched with so great purity. I thank and resolve always to thank our common Creator for having preserved thee from every stain of sin, and I firmly believe this doctrine, and am prepared to swear even to lay down my life, should this be necessary, in defense of this thy so great and singular privilege of being conceived immaculate. I would that the whole world knew thee and acknowledged thee as being that beautiful dawn which was always illumined with divine light, as that chosen ark of salvation, free from the common shipwreck of sin, that perfect and immaculate dove which thy divine spouse declared thee to be, that enclosed garden which was the delight of God, that sealed fountain whose waters were never troubled by an enemy and finally as that white lily which thou art, and who, though born in the midst of the thorns of the children of Adam, all of whom are conceived in sin and the enemies of God, wast alone conceived pure and spotless, and in all things the beloved of thy Creator. Permit me, then, to praise thee also as thy God himself has praised thee. Thou art all fair, and there is not a spot in thee, O most pure dove, all fair, all beautiful, always the friend of God, O how beautiful art thou, my beloved, how beautiful thou art! Ah, most 
sweet, most amiable, immaculate Mary, thou who art so beautiful in the eyes of thy Lord, ah, disdain not to cast thy compassionate eyes on the wounds of my soul, loathsome as they are. Behold me, pity me, heal me. O, o beautiful lodestone of hearts, draw also my miserable heart to thyself. O thou, who from the first moment of thy life didst appear pure and beautiful before God, pity me, who not only was born in sin, but have again since baptism stained my soul with crimes. What grace will God ever refuse thee, who chose thee for his daughter, his mother, and spouse, and therefore preserved thee from every stain, and in his love preferred thee to all other creatures? I will say in the words of St. Philip Neri, Immaculate Virgin, thou hast to save me. Grant that I may always remember thee, and thou, do thou never forget me. The happy day when I shall go to behold thy beauty in paradise seems a thousand years off. So much do I long to praise and love thee more than I can do now. My mother, my queen, my beloved, most beautiful, most sweet, most pure, immaculate Mary. Amen. We will continue on the next side of the tape. We now continue with the glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. Discourse 2. The Birth of Mary. September 8th. Mary was born a saint and a great saint, for the grace with which God enriched her from the beginning was great and the fidelity with which she immediately corresponded to it was great. Men usually celebrate the birth of their children with great feasts and rejoicings, but they should rather pity them and show signs of mourning and grief on reflecting that they were born, not only deprived of grace and reason, but worse than this, they are infected with sin and are children of wrath and therefore condemned to misery and death. It is indeed right, however, to celebrate with festivity and universal joy the birth of our infant Mary. For she first saw the light of this world, a babe, it is true, in point of age, but in great in merit and virtue. Mary was born a saint, and a great saint. But to form an idea of the greatness of her sanctity, even at this early period, we must consider first the greatness of the first grace with which God enriched her, and secondly the greatness of her fidelity in immediately corresponding to it. Part 1. To begin with the first point, it is certain that Mary's soul was the most beautiful that God had ever created. Nay more, after the work of the incarnation of the eternal word, this was the greatest and most worthy of himself that an omnipotent God ever did in the world. St. Peter Damien calls it a work only surpassed by God. Hence it follows that divine grace did not come into Mary by drops as in other saints, but like rain on the fleece, as it was told by David. The soul of Mary was like fleece and imbibed in the whole shower of grace without losing a drop. St. Basil of Seleucia says that the Holy Virgin was full of grace because she was elected and pre-elected by God and the Holy Spirit was about to take full possession of her. 
Hence she said by the lips of Ecclesiasticus, My abode is in the full assembly of saints. That is, as St. Bonaventure explains it, I hold in plentitude all the, uh, that other saints have held in part. And St. Vincent Ferrer, speaking particularly of the sanctity of Mary before her birth, says that the Blessed Virgin was sanctified, surpassed in sanctity, in her mother's womb above all saints and angels. The grace that the Blessed Virgin received exceeded not only that of each particular saint, but of all the angels and saints put together, as the most learned Father Francis Pepe of the Society of Jesus proves in his beautiful work on the greatness of Jesus and Mary. He asserts that this opinion, so glorious for our Queen, is now generally admitted and considered as beyond doubt by modern theologians. And besides this, he relates that the Divine Mother sent Father Martin Gortinez to thank Father Suarez on her part for having so courageously defended this most probable opinion, and which, according to Father Signieri, on his client of Mary, was afterwards believed and defended by the University of Salamanca. But if this opinion is general and certain, the other is also very probable, namely that Mary received this grace, exceeding that of all men and angels together, in the first instant of her immaculate conception. Father Suarez strongly maintains this opinion, as do also Father Spinelli, Father Rusuptio, and Father La Colombière. But besides the authority of theologians, there are two great and convincing arguments which sufficiently prove the correctness of the above-named opinion. 1. The first is that Mary was chosen by God to be the mother of the Divine Word. Hence, Dennis the Carthusian says that as she was chosen to an order superior to that of all other creatures, for in a certain sense the dignity of Mother of God, as Father Suarez asserts, belongs to the order of hypostatic union. It is reasonable to suppose that from the very beginning of her life gifts of a superior order were conferred upon her, and such gifts as much have incomparably surpassed those granted to all other creatures. And indeed, it cannot be doubted that when the person of the eternal word was, in the divine decrees, predestined to make himself man, a mother was also destined for him, from whom he was to take his human nature. And this mother was our infant Mary. Now St. Thomas teaches that God gives everyone grace proportion to the dignity for which he destines him. And St. Paul teaches us the same thing when he says, Who also hath made us fit ministers of the New Testament. That is, the apostles received gifts from God proportioned to the greatness of the office with which they were charged. St. Bernardine of Siena adds that it is an axiom in theology that when a person is chosen by God for any state, he receives not only the dispositions necessary for it, but even the gifts which he needs to sustain that state with decorum. But as Mary was chosen to be the mother of God, it was quite becoming that God should adorn her in the first moment of her existence with an immense grace, 
and one of a superior order to that of all other men and angels, since it had to correspond to the immense and most high dignity to which God exalted her. And all theologians come to this conclusion with St. Thomas, who says, The Blessed Virgin was chosen to be the mother of God, and therefore it is not to be doubted that God fitted her for it by his grace. So much so that Mary, before becoming the mother of God, was adorned with a sanctity so perfect that it rendered her fit for this great dignity. The holy doctor says that in the Blessed Virgin there was a preparatory perfection which rendered her fit to be the mother of Christ, and this was the perfection of sanctification. And before making this last remark, the holy doctor had said that Mary was called full of grace, not on the part of grace itself, for she had it not in the highest possible degree, since even the habitual grace of Jesus Christ, according to the same holy doctor, was not such that the absolute power of God could not have made it greater, although it was a grace sufficient for the end for which his humanity was ordained by the divine wisdom, that is, for its union with the person of the eternal word. Although the divine power could make something greater and better than the habitual grace of Christ, it could not fit it for anything greater than the personal union with the only begotten Son of the Father, and to which union that measure of grace sufficiently corresponds, according to the limit placed by divine wisdom. For the same angelic doctor teaches that the divine power is so great that however much it gives, it can always give more, and although the natural capacity of creatures is in itself limited as to receiving, so that it can be entirely filled, nevertheless its power to obey the divine will is unlimited, and God can always fill it more by increasing its capacity to receive. As far as its natural capacity goes, it can be filled, but it cannot be filled as far as its power of obeying goes. But now, to return to our proposition, St. Thomas says that the Blessed Virgin was not filled with grace as to grace itself. Nevertheless, she is called full of grace as to herself, for she had an immense grace, one which was sufficient and corresponded to her immense dignity, so much so that it fitted her to be the mother of God. The Blessed Virgin is full of grace, not with the fullness of grace itself, for she had not grace in the highest degree of excellence in which it can be had, nor had she it as to all its effects. But she was said to be full of grace as to herself, because she had sufficient grace for that state to which she was chosen by God, that is, to be the mother of his only begotten Son. Hence, Benedict Ferendez says, that the measure whereby we may know the greatness of the grace communicated to Mary is her dignity of mother of God. It was not without reason, then, that David said that the foundations of this city of God, that is, Mary, are planted above the summits of the mountains. The foundations thereof are in the holy mountains. Whereby we are to understand that Mary, in the very beginning of her life, was to be more perfect than the united perfections of the entire lives of the saints could have made her. And the prophet continues, 
The Lord loveth the gates of Sion above all the tabernacles of Jacob. And the same King David tells us why God thus loved her. It was because he was to become man in her virginal womb. A man is born in her. Hence it was becoming that God should give this blessed virgin, in the very moment that he created her, a grace corresponding to the dignity of Mother of God. Isaiah signified the same thing when he said that, in a time to come, a mountain of the house of the Lord, which was the Blessed Virgin, was to be prepared on the top of all other mountains, and that, in consequence, all nations would run to this mountain to receive the divine mercies. And in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be prepared on the top of mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. St. Gregory, explaining this passage, says, It is a mountain on the top of mountains, for the perfection of Mary is resplendent above that of all the saints. And St. John Damascene, that it is a mountain in which God was well pleased to dwell. Therefore Mary was called a Cypress, but a Cypress of Mount Sion. She was called a Cedar, but a Cedar of Lebanus an olive tree, but a fair olive tree, beautiful, but beautiful as the sun. For as St. Peter Damien said, as the light of the sun so greatly surpasses that of the stars, that in it they are no longer visible, it overwhelms them so that they are as if they were not. So does the great Virgin Mother surpass in sanctity the whole court of heaven, so much so that St. Bernard beautifully remarks that the sanctity of Mary was so sublime that no other mother than Mary became a god and no other son than God became Mary. 2. The second argument by which it is proved that Mary was more holy in the first moment of her existence than all the saints together is founded on the great office of Mediatress of Men with which she was charged from the beginning and which made it necessary that she should possess a greater treasure of grace from the beginning than all other men together. It is well known with what unanimity theologians and holy fathers give Mary this title of Mediatress, on account of her having obtained salvation for all, by her powerful intercession and her merit of congruity, thereby procuring the great benefit of redemption for the lost world. I say by her merit of congruity, for Jesus Christ alone is our mediator by way of justice and by merit. De condigno, as the scholastics say, he having offered his merits to the Eternal Father, who accepted them for our salvation. Mary, on the other hand, is a mediatress of grace by way of simple intercession and merit of congruity. She having offered to God, as theologians say, with St. Bonaventure, her merits for the salvation of all men, and God, as a favor, accepted them with the merits of Jesus Christ. On this account, Arnold of Chartres says that she effected our salvation in common with Christ, and Richard of St. Victor says that Mary desired, sought, and obtained the salvation of all, nay, even she effected the salvation of all, so that everything good and every gift in the order of grace which each of the saints received from God, Mary obtained for them.
and the Holy Church wishes us to understand this when she honors the Divine Mother by applying the following verses of Ecclesiasticus to her. In me is all grace of the way and the truth. Of the way, because by Mary all graces are dispensed to wayfarers. Of the truth, because the light of truth is imparted by her. In me is all hope of life and of virtue. Of life, for by Mary we hope to obtain the life of grace in this world and that of glory in heaven. And of virtue, for through her we acquire virtues, and especially the theological virtues, which are the principal virtues of the saints. I am the mother of fair love, and of fear, and of knowledge, and of holy hope. Mary, by her intercession, obtains for her servants the gifts of divine love, holy fear, heavenly light, and holy perseverance, from which St. Bernard concludes that it is a doctrine of the Church that Mary is the universal mediatress of our salvation. He says, Magnify the finder of grace, the mediatress of salvation, the restorer of ages. This I am taught by the Church proclaiming it, and thus also she teaches me to proclaim the same thing to others. St. Sophronius, Patriarch of Jerusalem, asserts that the reason for which the Archangel Gabriel called her full of grace, hail, full of grace, was because only limited grace was given to others, but it was given to Mary in all its plentitude. Truly she was full, for grace is given to other saints partially, but the whole plentitude of grace poured itself into Mary. St. Basil of Seleucia declares that she received this plentitude that she might thus be a worthy mediatress between men and God. Hail, full of grace, mediatress between men and God, and by whom heaven and earth are brought together and united. Otherwise, says St. Lawrence Justinian, had not the Blessed Virgin been full of divine grace, how could she have become the latter to heaven? and advocate of the world, and the most true mediatress between men and God. The second argument has now become clear and evident. If Mary, as the already destined mother of our common Redeemer, received from the very beginning the office of mediatress of all men, and consequently even of the saints, it was also requisite from the very beginning she should have a grace exceeding that of all the saints for whom she was to intercede. I will explain myself more clearly. If by the means of Mary all men were to render themselves dear to God, necessarily Mary was more holy and more dear to him than all men together. Otherwise, how could she have interceded for all others? That an intercessor may obtain the favor of a prince for all his vassals, it is absolutely necessary that he should be more dear to his prince than all the other vassals. And therefore St. Anselm concludes that Mary deserved to be made the worthy repairer of the lost world because she was the most holy and the most pure of all creatures. The pure sanctity of her heart, surpassing the purity and sanctity of all other creatures, merited for her that she should be made the repairer of the lost world. Mary, then, was the mediatress of men. It may be asked, but how can she be called also the mediatress of angels? 
Many theologians maintain that Jesus Christ merited the grace of perseverance for the angels also, so that as Jesus was their mediator, de condigno, so also Mary may be said to be the mediatress even of the angels, de congruo, she having hastened the coming of the Redeemer by her prayers. At least meriting de congruo to become the mother of the Messiah, she merited for the angels that the thrones lost by the devils should be filled up. Thus, she at least merited this accidental glory for them. And therefore, Richard of St. Victor says, By her every creature is repaired, by her the ruin of the angels is remedied, and by her human nature is reconciled. And before him St. Anselm said, All things are recalled and reinstated in their primitive state by this blessed virgin. Let us conclude that our heavenly child, because she was appointed mediatress of the world, as also because she was destined to be the mother of the Redeemer, received at the very beginning of her existence grace exceeding in greatness that of all the saints together. Hence, how delightful a sight must the beautiful soul of this happy child have been to heaven and earth although still enclosed in her mother's womb. She was the most amiable creature in the eyes of God, because she was already loaded with grace and merit, and could say, When I was a little one, I pleased the Most High. And she was at the same time the creature above all others that had ever appeared in the world up to that moment, who loved God the most, so much so that had Mary been born immediately after her most pure conception, she would have come into the world richer in merits and more holy than all the saints united. Then let us reflect only how much greater her sanctity must have been and her nativity, coming into the world after acquiring all the merits that she did acquire during the whole of the nine months that she remained in the womb of her mother. Part 2 Now let us pass to the consideration of the second point, that is to say, the greatness of the fidelity with which Mary immediately corresponded to divine grace. It is not a private opinion only, says the learned author, Father Lacombe-Lombiere, but it is the opinion of all that the Holy Child, when she received sanctifying grace in the womb of St. Anne, received also the perfect use of her reason, and was also divinely enlightened in a degree corresponding to the grace with which she was enriched, so that we may well believe that from the first moment that her beautiful soul was united to her most pure body, she, by the light she had received from the wisdom of God, knew well the eternal truths, the beauty of virtue, and above all, the infinite goodness of God, and how much he deserved to be loved by all, and particularly by herself, on account of the singular gifts with which he had adorned and distinguished her above all creatures, by preserving her from the stain of original sin, by bestowing on her so immense grace, and destining her to be the mother of the eternal word and the queen of the universe. Hence, from that first moment, Mary, grateful to God, began to do all that she could do, by immediately and faithfully trafficking with that great capital of grace which had been bestowed upon her, and applying herself entirely to please and love the divine goodness. 
From that moment she loved him with all her strength, and continued thus to love him always, during the whole of the nine months preceding her birth, during which she never ceased for a moment to unite herself more and more closely with God by fervent acts of love. She was already free from original sin, and hence was exempt from every earthly affection, from every irregular movement, from every distraction, from every opposition on the part of the senses, which could in any way have hindered her from always advancing more and more in divine love. Her senses also concurred with her blessed spirit in tending towards God. Hence her beautiful soul, free from every impediment, never lingered, but always flew towards God, always loved Him, and always increased in love towards Him. It was for this reason that she called herself a plain tree, planted by flow flowing waters. As a plain tree by the waters was I exalted. For she was that noble plant of God which always grew by the streams of divine grace, and therefore she also calls herself a vine. As a vine I have brought forth a pleasant odor, not only because she was so humble in the eyes of the world, but because she was like the vine, which, according to the common proverb, never ceases to grow. Other trees, the orange tree, the mulberry, the pear tree, have a determined height which they attain, but the vine always grows and grows to the height of the tree to which it is attached. And thus did the most blessed virgin always grow in perfection. Hail then, O vine, always growing, says St. Gregory Thaumaturgus. For she was always united to God, on whom alone she depended. Hence it was of her that the Holy Ghost spoke, saying, Who is this that cometh up from the desert, flowing with delights, leaning upon her beloved? which St. Ambrose thus paraphrases, She it is that cometh up, clinging to the eternal word, as a vine to a vine stock. Who is this accompanied by the divine word, that grows as a vine planted against a great tree? Many learned theologians say that a soul that possesses a habit of virtue, as long as it corresponds faithfully to the actual grace which it receives from God, always produces an act equal in intensity to the habit it possesses, so much so that it acquires each time a new and double merit, equal to the sum of all the merits previously acquired. This kind of augmentation was, it is said, granted to the angels in the time of their probation. And if it was granted to the angels, who can ever deny that it was granted to the Divine Mother when living in this world? and especially during the time of which I speak, that she was in the womb of her mother, in which she was certainly more faithful than the angels in corresponding to divine grace. Mary then, during the whole of that time, in each moment, doubled that sublime grace which she possessed from the first instant. For, corresponding to her whole strength, and in the most perfect manner in her every act, she sub subsequently doubled her merits in every instant, so that supposing she had a thousand degrees of grace in the first instance, in the second she had two thousand, in the third four thousand, in the fourth eight thousand, in the fifth sixteen thousand, and in the sixth thirty-two thousand. And we are as yet only at the sixth instant, 
but multiplied thus for an entire day, multiplied for nine months, consider what treasures of grace, merit, and sanctity Mary had already acquired at the moment of her birth. Let us then rejoice with our beloved infant, who was born so holy, so dear to God, and so full of grace. And let us rejoice not only on her account, but also on our own, for she came into the world full of grace, not only for her own glory, but also for our good. St. Thomas remarks in his eighth treaty that the most blessed virgin was full of grace in three ways. First, she was filled with grace as to her soul, so that from the beginning her beautiful soul belonged all to God. Secondly, she was filled with grace as to her body, so that she merited to clothe the eternal word with her most pure flesh. Thirdly, she was filled with grace for the benefit of all, so that all men might partake of it. She was also full of grace as to its overflowing for the benefit of all men. The angelical doctor adds that some saints have so much grace that it is not only sufficient for themselves, but also for the salvation of many, though not for all men. Only to Jesus Christ and to Mary was such a grace given as sufficed to save all. Should any one have as much as would suffice for the salvation of all, this would be the greatest, and this was in Christ and the Blessed Virgin. Thus far St. Thomas. So that what St. John says of Jesus, and of his fullness we all have received, the saints say of Mary. St. Thomas of Villanova calls her full of grace, of whose plentitude all receive. So much so that St. Anselm says that there is no one who does not partake of the grace of Mary. And who is there in the world to whom Mary is not benign and does not dispense some mercy? Who was ever found to whom the Blessed Virgin was not propitious? Who is there whom her mercy does not reach? From Jesus, however, it is, we must understand, that we receive grace as the author of grace, from Mary as a mediatress, from Jesus as a savior, from Mary as an advocate, from Jesus as a source, from Mary as a channel. Hence, St. Bernard says that God established Mary as the channel of the mercies that he wished to dispense to men. Therefore, he filled her with grace that each one's part might be communicated to him from her fullness, a full aqueduct that others might receive of her fullness, but not fullness itself. Therefore the saint exhorts all to consider with how much love God wills that we should honor his great virgin, since he has deposited the whole treasure of his graces in her, so that whatever we possess of hope, grace, and salvation we may thank our most loving Queen for all, since all comes to us from her hands and by her powerful intercession. He thus beautifully expresses himself. Behold with what tender feelings of devotion he wills that we should honor her, he who has placed the plentitude of all good in Mary, that thus, if we have any hope or anything salutary in us, we may know that it was from her that it overflowed. Miserable is that soul that closes this channel of grace against itself by neglecting to recommend itself to Mary. 
When Holofernes wished to gain possession of the city of Bethulia, he took care to destroy the aqueducts. He commanded their aqueduct to be cut off. And this the devil does when he wishes to become master of a soul. He causes it to give up devotion to the most blessed Virgin Mary. And when once this channel is closed, it easily loses supernatural light, the fear of God, and finally eternal salvation. Read the following example, in which may be seen how great is the compassion of the heart of Mary, and the destruction that he brings on himself who closes this channel against himself by giving up devotion to the Queen of Heaven. Example. There were two young noblemen in Madrid, of whom the one encouraged the other in leading a wicked life, and in committing all sorts of crimes. One of them one night in a dream saw his friend taken by certain black men and carried to a tempestuous sea. They were going to take him in a similar manner, but he had recourse to Mary and made a vow that he would embrace the religious state on which he was delivered from those blacks. He then saw Jesus on a throne, as if in anger, and the Blessed Virgin imploring mercy for him. After this, his friend came to pay him a visit, and he related then what he had seen, but his companion only turned it into ridicule, and he was shortly afterwards stabbed and died. When the young man saw that his vision was verified, he went to confession, and renewed his resolution to enter a religious order. And for this purpose he sold all that he had, but instead of giving it to the poor as he had intended, he spent it in all sorts of debauchery. He then fell ill and had another vision. He thought he saw hell open, and the divine judge who had already condemned him. Again he had recourse to Mary, and she once more delivered him. He recovered his health and went on worse than ever. He afterwards went to Lena in South America, where he relapsed into his former illness, and in the hospital of that place he was once more touched by the grace of God, confessed his sins to the Jesuit father, Francis Perlino, and promised him that he would change his life. But again he fell into his former crimes. At last the same father going into another hospital in a distant place, saw the miserable wretch extended on the ground and heard him cry out, Ah, abandoned wretch that I am! For my greater torment this father is come to witness my chastisement. From Lima I came hither, where my vices have brought me to this end, and now I go to hell. With these words he expired, without even leaving the father time to help him. Prayer. O holy and heavenly infant, thou who art the destined mother of my Redeemer and the great mediatress of miserable sinners, pity me. Behold at thy feet another ungrateful sinner who has recourse to thee and asks thy compassion. It is true that for my ingratitude to God and to thee I deserve that God and thou should abandon me, but I have heard and believe it to be so knowing the greatness of thy mercy, that thou dost not refuse to help anyone who recommends himself to thee with confidence. O most exalted creature in the world, since this is the case, 
and since there is no one but God above thee, so that compared with thee the greatest saints of heaven are little. O saint of saints, O Mary, abyss of charity and full of grace, succor a miserable creature who by his own fault has lost the divine favor. I know that thou art so dear to God that he denies thee nothing. I know also that thy pleasure is to use thy greatness for the relief of the miserable sinners. Ah, then, show how great is the favor that thou enjoyest with God by obtaining me a divine light and flame so powerful that I may be changed from a sinner to a saint, and detaching myself from every earthly affection, divine love may be enkindled in me. Do this, O lady, for thou canst do it. Do it for the love of God, who has made thee so great, so powerful, and so compassionate. This is my hope. Amen. Discourse 3 The Presentation of Mary November 21 The offering that Mary made of herself to God was prompt without delay and entire without reserve. There never was and never will be an offering on the part of a pure creature greater or more perfect than that which Mary made to God when at the age of three years, she presented herself in the temple to offer him not aromatical spices, nor calves, nor gold, but her entire self, consecrating herself as a perpetual victim in his honor. She well understood the voice of God, calling her to devote herself entirely to his love, when he said, Arise, make haste, my love, my dove, my beautiful one, and come. Therefore her Lord willed that from that time she should forget her country and all to think only of loving and pleasing him. Hearken, O daughter, and see, and incline thine ear, and forget thy people and thy father's house. She with promptitude and at once obeyed the divine call. Let us then consider how acceptable was this offering which Mary made of herself to God, for it was prompt and entire. Hence the two points for our consideration are, first, Mary's offering was prompt and without delay. Secondly, it was entire and without reserve. Part 1. Mary's offering was prompt. From the first moment that this heavenly child was sanctified in her mother's womb, which was in the instant of her immaculate conception, she received the perfect use of reason that she might begin to merit. This is in accordance with the general opinion of theologians and with that of Father Suarez in particular, who says that as the most perfect way in which God sanctifies a soul by its own merit, as St. Thomas also teaches, it is thus we must believe that the Blessed Virgin was sanctified. To be sanctified by one's own act is the more perfect way Therefore, it is to be believed that the Blessed Virgin was thus sanctified. And if this privilege was granted to the angels and to Adam, as the angelic doctor says, much more ought we to believe that it was granted to the Divine Mother, on whom, certainly, we must suppose that God, having condescended to make her his mother, also conferred greater gifts than on all the other creatures. From her says the same holy doctor, 
He received his human nature, and therefore she must have obtained a greater plentitude of grace from Christ than all others. For being a mother, Father Suarez says, she has a sort of special right to all the gifts of her son. And as, on account of the hypostatic union, it was right that Jesus should receive the plentitude of all graces, so, on account of the divine maternity, it was becoming that Jesus should confer, as a natural debt, greater graces on Mary than he granted to all other angels and saints. Thus, from the beginning of her life, Mary knew God and knew him so that no tongue, as the angel declared to St. Bridget, will ever express how clearly this blessed virgin understood his greatness in that very first moment of her existence. And thus enlightened, she instantly offered her entire self to her Lord, dedicating herself without reserve to his love and glory. Immediately, the angel went on to say, our queen determined to sacrifice her will to God and to give him all her love for the whole of her life. No one can understand how entire was the subjection in which she then emplaced her will, and how fully she was determined to do all according to his pleasure. But the Immaculate Child, afterwards understanding that her holy parents, Joachim and Anne, had promised God, even by vow, as many authors relate, that if he granted them issue, they would consecrate it to his service in the temple as it was, moreover, an ancient custom amongst the Jews to take their daughters to the temple and there to leave them for their education, for which purpose they were self-contiguous, as it is recorded by Baronius, Nicephorus, Cedrinius, and Suarez, with Josephus, the Jewish historian, and also on the authority of St. John Damascene, St. George of Nicomedia, and St. Anselm, and St. Ambrose, and, as we may easily gather from the second book of Maccabees, where, where, speaking of Heliodorus, who besieged the temple, that he might gain possession of the treasures there deposited, says, Because the place was like to come into contempt, and the virgins also that were shut up came forth, some to Onias. Mary, hearing this, I say, having scarcely attained the age of three years, as St. Germanus and St. Epiphanius attest, the latter of whom says, in her third year she was brought to the temple, an age at which children are the most desirous to stand in the greatest need of their parents' care, she desired to offer and solemnly to consecrate herself to God by presenting herself in the temple. Hence, of her own accord, she requested her parents with earnestness to take her there, that they might thus accomplish their promise. And her holy mother, says St. Gregory of Nessa, did not long delay leading her to the temple and offering her to God. Behold now Joachim and Anne, generously sacrificing to God the most precious treasure that they possessed in the world, and the one that was dearest to their heart, setting out from Nazareth, carrying their well-beloved little daughter in turns for she could not otherwise have undertaken so long a journey as that from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it being a distance of eighty miles, as several authors say. They were accompanied by few relatives, but choirs of angels, according to St. George of Nicomedia, escorted and served the immaculate little virgin, 
who was about to consecrate herself to the Divine Majesty. Oh, how beautiful are thy steps, O Prince's daughter! Oh, how beautiful, must the angels have sung, how acceptable to God is thy every step taken on thy way to present and offer thyself to him. O noble daughter, most beloved of our common Lord, God himself with the whole heavenly court, says Bernardine de Bustis, made great rejoicings on that day, beholding his spouse coming to the temple. For he never saw a more holy creature, or one whom he so tenderly loved, come to offer herself to him. Go then, says St. Germanus, Archbishop of Constantinople. Go, O Queen of the world, O Mother of God, go joyfully to the house of God, there to await the coming of the Divine Spirit, who will make thee the mother of the eternal word. Enter with exultation the courts of the Lord in expectation of the coming of the Holy Ghost and the conception of the only begotten Son of God. When the holy company had reached the temple, the fair child turned to her parents and on her knees kissed their hands and asked their blessing. And then, without again turning back, she ascended the fifteen steps of the temple, according to Arius Montano, quoting Josephus, and, as we are told by St. Germanus, presented herself to the priest, St. Zachary. Having done this, she bade farewell to the world, and renouncing all the pleasures that it promises to its votaries, she offered and consecrated herself to her Creator. We will continue on the next tape. We now continue with The Glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. At the time of the deluge, a raven sent out of the ark by Noah remained to feed on the dead bodies. But the dove, without resting her foot, quickly returned to him into the ark. Many who are sent by God into this world unfortunately remain to feed on earthly goods. It was not thus that Mary, our heavenly dove, acted. She knew full well that God should be our only good, our only hope, our only love. She knew that the world is full of dangers, and that he who leaves it the soonest is freest from its snares. Hence she sought to do this in her tenderest years, and as soon as possible shut herself up in the sacred retirement of the temple, where she could better hear his voice and honor and love him more. Thus did the Blessed Virgin, in her very first actions, render herself entirely dear and agreeable to her Lord, as the Holy Church says in her name, Rejoice with me, all ye who love God, for when I was a little one I pleased the Most High. For this reason she was likened to the moon, for as the moon completes her course with greater velocity than the other planets, so did Mary attain perfection sooner than all the saints, by giving herself to God promptly and without delay, and making herself all his without reserve. Let us now pass to the second point, on which we shall have much to say. Part 2 the enlightened child knew well that God does not accept a divided heart, but wills that, as he has commanded it, 
it should be consecrated to his love without the least reserve. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart. Hence, from the first moment of her life, she began to love God with all her strength and gave herself entirely to him. But still her most holy soul awaited with the most ardent desire the moment when she might consecrate herself to him in a more solemn and public way. Let us, then, consider with what fervor this loving and tender virgin, on finding herself actually enclosed in the holy place, first prostrate kissed the ground as the house of her Lord, and then adored his infinite majesty, thanked him for the favor she had received in being thus brought to dwell for a time in his house, and then offered her entire self to God, wholly, without reserving anything, all her powers and all her senses, her whole mind and her whole heart, her whole soul and her whole body. For then it was, according to many authors, that to please God she vowed him her virginity, a vow which, according to the abbot Rupert, Mary was the first to make. And the offering she then made of her entire self was without any reserve as to time, as St. Bernardine de Bustis declares. Mary offered and dedicated herself to the perpetual service of God, for her intention was to dedicate herself to the service of His Divine Majesty in the temple for her whole life, should such be the good pleasure of God, and never leave that sacred place. Oh, with what effusion of soul must she then have exclaimed, My beloved to me, and I to him. Cardinal Hugo paraphrases these words, saying, I will live all his and die all his. My Lord and my God, she said, I am come here to please thee alone and to give thee all the honor that is in my power. Here will I live all thine and die all thine, should such be thy pleasure. Accept the sacrifice which thy poor servant offers thee and enable me to be faithful to thee. Here let us consider how holy was the life which Mary led in the temple, where, as the morning rising, which rapidly bursts out into the full brightness of midday, she progressed in perfection. Who can ever tell the always increasing brightness with which her resplendent virtues shone forth from day to day? Charity, modesty, humility, silence, mortification, meekness. This fair olive tree, says St. John Damascene, planted in the house of God and nurtured by the Holy Ghost, became the dwelling place of all virtues, led to the temple and thenceforward planted in the house of God and cultivated by the Spirit. She, as a fruitful olive tree, became the abode of all virtues. The same saint says elsewhere that the countenance of the Blessed Virgin was modest, her mind humble, her words proceeding from a composed interior were engaging. In another place he asserts that she turned her thoughts far from earthly things, embracing all virtues, and thus exercising herself in perfection. She made so rapid progress in a short time that she merited to become a temple worthy of God. St. Anselm also speaks of the life of the Blessed Virgin in the temple and says that Mary was docile, spoke little, was always composed, 
did not laugh, and that her mind was never disturbed. She also persevered in prayer, in the study of the sacred scriptures, in fastings, and all virtuous works. St. Jerome and St. Bonaventure enter more into detail. They say that Mary thus regulated her life. In the morning until the third hour she remained in prayer. From the third hour until the ninth she employed herself with work, and from the ninth hour she again prayed until the angel brought her her food, as he was wont to do. She was always the first in watchings, the most exact in the observance of the divine law, the most profoundly humble, and the most perfect in every virtue. No one ever saw her angry. Her every word carried such sweetness with it that it was a witness to all that God was with her. We read in St. Bonaventure's Life of Christ that the Divine Mother herself revealed to St. Elizabeth of Hungary that when her father and mother left her in the temple, she determined to have God alone for her father, and often thought how she could please him most. Moreover, as we learn from the revelations of St. Bridget, she determined to consecrate her virginity to him, and to possess nothing in the world, and to give him her entire will. Besides this, she told St. Elizabeth, that of all the commandments to be observed, the, she especially kept this one before her eyes, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and that at midnight she went before the altar of the temple to beg that he would grant her the grace to observe them all, and also that she might live to see the birth of the mother of the Redeemer, entreating him at the same time to preserve her eyes to behold her, her tongue to praise her, her hands and feet to serve her, and her knees to adore her divine Son in her womb. St. Elizabeth, on hearing this, said, But, Lady, wast thou not full of grace and virtue? And Mary replied, Know that I considered myself most vile and unworthy of divine grace, and therefore thus earnestly prayed for grace and virtue. And finally, that we might be convinced of the absolute necessity under which we all are of asking the graces that we require from God, she added, Dost thou think that I possessed grace and virtue without effort? No, that I obtained no grace from God without great effort, constant prayer, ardent desire, and many tears and mortifications. But above all, we should consider the revelation made to St. Bridget of the virtues and practices of the Blessed Virgin in her childhood in the following words. From her childhood, Mary was full of the Holy Ghost, and as she advanced in age, she advanced also in grace. Thenceforward, she determined to live and love God with her whole heart, so that she might never offend Him, either by her words or actions and therefore she despised all earthly goods. She gave all that she could to the poor. In her food she was so temperate that she took only as much as was barely necessary to sustain her body. Afterwards, on discovering in the sacred scriptures that God was to be born of a virgin, that he might redeem the world, her soul was to such a degree inflamed with divine love that she could desire and think of nothing but God. In finding pleasure in him alone, she avoided all company, even that of her parents, lest their presence might deprive her of his remembrance. 
she desired with the greatest ardor to live until the time of the coming of the Messiah, that she might be the servant of that happy virgin who merited to be his mother. Thus far the revelations of St. Bridget. Ah, yes, for the love of this exalted child, the Redeemer did indeed hasten his coming into the world. For whilst she, in her humility, looked upon herself as unworthy to be the servant of the Divine Mother, she was herself chosen to be this mother, and by the sweet odor of her virtues and her powerful prayers she drew the Divine Son into her virginal womb. For this reason Mary was called the Turtle Dove by her Divine Spouse. The voice of the turtle has heard in our land. Not only because as a turtle dove she always loved solitude, living in this world as in a desert, but also because, like a turtle dove, which always sighs for its companions, Mary always sighed in the temple, compassionating the miseries of the lost world and seeking from God the redemption of all. Oh, with how much greater feeling and fervor than the prophets did she repeat their prayers and sighs that God would send the promised Redeemer. Send forth, O Lord, the Lamb, the ruler of the earth. Drop down dew, ye heavens, from above, and let the clouds reign the just. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and wouldst come down. In a word, it was a subject of delight to God to behold this tender virgin, always ascending towards the highest perfection, like a pillar of smoke, rich in the sweet odor of all virtues, as the Holy Ghost himself clearly describes her in the sacred canticles. Who is she that goeth up by the desert as a pillar of smoke, of aromatical spices, of myrrh and frankincense, and of all the powders of the perfumer? This child, says St. Sophronius, was truly God's garden of delights, for he there found every kind of flower and all the sweet odors of virtues. Hence St. John Chrysostom affirms that God chose Mary for his mother in this world because he did not find on earth a virgin more holy and more perfect than she was, nor any dwelling more worthy than her most sacred womb. St. Bernard also says, that there was not on earth a more worthy place than the virginal womb. This also agrees with the assertion of St. Antoninus, that the Blessed Virgin to be chosen for and destined to the dignity of Mother of God was necessarily so great and consummate in perfection as to surpass all other creatures. The last grace of perfection is that which prepared her for the conception of the Son of God. As, then, the holy child Mary presented and offered herself to God in the temple with promptitude and without reserve, so let us also present ourselves this day to Mary without delay and without reserve, and let us entreat her to offer us to God, who will not reject us when he sees us presented by the hand of that blessed creature, who is the living temple of the Holy Ghost, the delight of her Lord, and the chosen mother of the eternal word. Let us also have unbounded confidence in this high and gracious lady who rewards indeed with the greatest love the homage that she receives from her clients, as we may gather from the following example. Example. We read, we read in the life of Sister Domenica del Paradiso, 
written by the Dominican father Ignatius del Ninti, that she was born of poor parents in the village of Paradiso near Florence. From her very infancy she began to serve the Divine Mother. She fasted every day in her honor, and on Saturdays gave the poor her food, of which she deprived herself. Every Saturday she went into the garden and into the neighboring fields and gathered all the flowers that she could find and presented them before an image of the Blessed Virgin with the child in her arms, which she kept in the house. But let us now see with how many favors this most gracious lady recompensed the homage of her servant. One day, when Domenica was ten years of age, standing at the window, she saw in the street a lady of noble bearing, accompanied by a little child, and they both extended their hands, asking for alms. She went to get some bread, when, in a moment, without the door being opened, she saw them by her side, and perceived that the child's hands and feet and side were wounded. She therefore asked the lady who had wounded the child. The mother answered, It was love. Domenica, inflamed with the love at the sight of the beauty and modesty of the child, asked him if the wounds pained him. His only answer was a smile. But as they were standing near the statue of Jesus and Mary, the lady said to Domenica, Tell me, my child, what is it that makes thee crown these images with flowers? She replied, It is the love that I bear to Jesus and Mary. And how much dost thou love them? I love them as much as I can. And how much canst thou love them? As much as they enable me. Continue then, added the lady, Continue to love them, for they will amply repay thy love in heaven. The little girl then, perceiving that a heavenly odor came forth from those wounds, asked the mother with what ointment she anointed them, and if it could be bought. The lady answered, It is bought with faith and good works. Domenica then offered the bread. The mother said, Love is the food of my son. Tell him that thou lovest Jesus, and he will be satisfied. The child at the word love seemed filled with joy, and turning towards the little girl, asked her how much she loved Jesus. She answered that she loved him so much that night and day she always thought of him and sought for nothing else but to give him as much pleasure as she possibly could. It is well, he replied. Love him, for love will teach thee what to do to please him. The sweet odor which ex exhaled from those wounds then increasing Domenica cried out, O oh God, this odor makes me die of love. If the odor of a child is so sweet, what must that of heaven be? But behold the scene now changed. The mother appeared clothed as a queen, and the child resplendent with beauty like the sun. He took the flowers and scattered them on the head of Domenica, who, recognizing Jesus and Mary in those personages, was already prostrate adoring them. Thus the vision ended. Domenica afterwards took the habit of Dominicanus and died in the odor of sanctity in the year 1553. Prayer O, o beloved, beloved Mother of God, most amiable child Mary, O that, as thou didst present thyself in the temple, and with promptitude and without reserve didst consecrate thyself to the glory and love of God, I could offer thee this day the first years of my life to devote myself without reserve to thy service 
my holy and most sweet lady. But it is now too late to do this, for unfortunate creature that I am, I have lost so many years in the service of the world and my own caprices, that I have lived in almost entire forgetfulness of thee and of God. Woe to that time in which I did not love thee! But it is better to begin late than not at all. Behold, O Mary, I this day present myself to thee, and I offer myself without reserve to thy service for the long or short time that I will still have to live on this earth. And in union with thee I renounce all creatures and devote myself entirely to the love of my Creator. I consecrate my mind to thee, O Queen, that it may always think of the love that thou deservest, my tongue to praise thee, my heart to love thee. Do thou accept, O most holy virgin, the offering which this miserable sinner now makes thee. Accept it, I beseech thee, by the consolation that thy heart experienced when thou gavest thyself to God in the temple. But since I enter thy service late, it is reasonable that I should redouble my acts of homage and love, thereby to compensate for lost time. Do thou help my weakness with thy powerful intercession, O Mother of Mercy, by obtaining me perseverance from thy Jesus, and strength to be always faithful to thee unto death, that thus always serving thee in life I may praise thee in paradise for all eternity. Amen. Discourse 4 The Annunciation of Mary March 25th In the incarnation of the Eternal Word, Mary could not have humbled herself more than she did humble herself. God, on the other hand, could not have exalted her more than he did exalt her. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. These are the words of our Lord, and cannot fail. Therefore God, having determined to become man, that he might redeem lost man, and thus show the world his infinite goodness, and having to choose a mother on earth, he sought amongst women for the one that was the most holy and the most humble. But amongst all, one there was whom he admired, and this one was the tender Virgin Mary, who, the more exalted were her virtues, so the more dove-like was her simplicity and humility, and the more lowly was she in her own estimation. There are young maidens without number. One is my dove, my perfect one. Therefore God said, This one shall be my chosen mother. Let us now see how great was Mary's humility, and consequently how greatly God exalted her. Mary could not have humbled herself more than she did humble herself in the incarnation of the Word. This will be the first point, that God could not have exalted Mary more than he did exalt her. This will be the second. Part 1 the Holy Spirit in the Sacred Canticles, speaking precisely of the humility of the Most Humble Virgin, says, While the King was at his repose, my spikenard sent forth the odor thereof. St. Antoninus, explaining these words, says that spikenard, being a small and lowly herb, was a type of Mary, the sweet odor of whose humility, ascending to heaven, so to say, awakened the Divine Word, 
reposing in the bosom of the Eternal Father, and drew him into her virginal womb, so that our Lord, drawn as it were by the sweet odor of this humble virgin, chose her for his mother, when he pl was pleased to become man to redeem the world. But he, for the greater glory and merit of his mother, would not become her son without her previous consent. The abbot William says, he would not take flesh from her unless she gave it. Hence, when this humble virgin, for so it was revealed to St. Elizabeth of Hungary, was in her poor little cottage, sighing and beseeching God more fervently than ever, and with desire more than ever ardent, that he would send the Redeemer, behold, the archangel Gabriel arrives, the bearer of the great message. He enters and salutes her, saying, Hail, full of grace! The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Hail, O Virgin, full of grace, for thou wast always full of grace above all other saints. The Lord is with thee, because thou art so humble. Thou art blessed amongst women, for all others fell under the curse of sin. But thou, because thou art the mother of the Blessed One, art and always wilt be blessed and free from every stain. But what does the humble Mary answer to a salutation so full of praises? Nothing. She remains silent, but reflecting upon it is troubled. Who, having heard, was troubled at his saying, and thought with herself what manner of salutation should this be? Why was she troubled? Did she fear an illusion? Or was it her virginal modesty which caused her to be disturbed at the sight of a man, as some suppose, in the belief that the angel appeared under a human form? No, the text is clear. She was troubled at his saying, not, not at his appearance, but at what he said, remarks Eusebius Emissinius. Her trouble, then, arose entirely from her humility which was disturbed at the sound of praises so far exceeding her own lowly estimate of herself. Hence, the more the angel exalted her, the more she humbled herself, and entered into the consideration of her own nothingness. Here St. Bernadine remarks that, had the angel said, O Mary, thou art the greatest sinner in the world, her astonishment would not have been so great. The sound of so high praises filled her with fear. She was troubled, for, being so full of humility, she abhorred every praise of herself, and her only desire was that her Creator, the giver of every good thing, should be praised and blessed. This Mary herself revealed to St. Bridget when speaking of the time in which she became the mother of God. I desired not my own praise, but only that my Creator, the giver of all, should be glorified. The Blessed Virgin was already well aware from the sacred scriptures that the time foretold by the prophets for the coming of the Messiah had arrived, that the weeks of Daniel were completed, that already, according to the prophecy of Jacob, the scepter of Judah had passed into the hands of Herod, a strange king. He, she already knew that a virgin was to be the mother of the Messiah. She then heard the angel give her praises which, it was evident, could apply to no other than to the mother of God. Hence, may not the thought, or at least some vague impression, have entered her mind that perhaps she was this chosen mother of God? 
No, her profound humility did not even admit such an idea. Those praises only caused great fear in her, so much so, as St. Peter Chrysologus remarks, that as Christ was pleased to be comforted by an angel, so was it necessary that the Blessed Virgin should be encouraged by one. St. Gabriel, seeing Mary so troubled and almost stupefied by the salutation, was obliged to encourage her, saying, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found grace with God. Fear not, O Mary, and be not surprised at the great titles by which I have saluted thee. For if thou in thine own eyes art so little and lowly, God, who exalts the humble, hath made thee worthy to find the grace lost by men, and therefore he has preserved thee from the common stain of the children of Adam. Hence, from the moment of thy conception, he has honored thee with a grace greater than that of all the saints, and therefore he now finally exalts thee even to the dignity of being his mother. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And now, why this delay, O Mary? The angel awaits the reply, says St. Bernard. And we also, O Lady, on whom the sentence of condemnation weighs so heavily, await the word of mercy. We, who are already condemned to death, behold, the price of our salvation is offered thee. We shall be instantly delivered if thou consentest, continues the same St. Bernard. Behold, O mother of us all, the price of our salvation is already offered thee. That price will be the divine word, made man in thee. In that, in that moment in which thou acceptest him for thy son, we shall be delivered from death. For thy Lord himself desires thy consent, by which he has determined to save the world, with an ardor equal to the love with which he has loved thy beauty. Answer then, O sacred virgin, says St. Augustine, or some other ancient writer, why delayest thou giving life to the world? Answer quickly, O lady, no longer delay the salvation of the world, which now depends upon thy consent. But see, Mary already answers. She says to the angel, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Oh, what more beautiful, more humble, or more prudent answer could all the wisdom of men and angels together have invented, had they reflected for a million years. O oh, powerful answer, which rejoiced heaven, and brought an immense sea of graces and blessings into the world, answer which had scarcely fallen from the lips of Mary, before it drew the only begotten Son of God from the bosom of his eternal Father, to become man in her most pure womb. Yes, indeed, for scarcely had she uttered these words, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word, when instantly the word was made flesh. The Son of God became also the Son of Mary. O powerful fiat, exclaimed St. Thomas of Villanova, O efficacious fiat, O fiat to be venerated above every other fiat, for with a fiat God created light, heaven, earth. But with Mary's fiat, says the saint, God became man like us. 
Let us, however, not wander from our point, but consider the great humility of the Blessed Virgin in this answer. She was fully enlightened as to the greatness of the dignity of a mother of God. She had already been assured by the angel that she was this happy mother chosen by our Lord. But with all this, she in no way rises in her own estimation. She does not stop to rejoice in her exaltation, but seeing on the one side her own nothingness and on the other the infinite majesty of God who chose her for his mother, she acknowledges how unworthy she is of so great an honor, but will not oppose his will in the least thing. Hence, when her consent is asked, what does she do? What does she say? Wholly annihilated within herself, yet all inflamed at the same time by the ardor of her desire to unite herself thus still more closely with God, and abandoning herself entirely to the divine will, she answers, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Behold the slave of the Lord, obliged to do that which her Lord commands. As if she meant to say, Since God chooses me for his mother, who have nothing of my own, and since all that I have is his gift, who can ever think that he has done so on account of my own merits? Behold the handmaid of the Lord. What merit can a slave ever have? that she should become the mother of her Lord. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. May the goodness of God alone be praised, and not his slave, since it is all his goodness that he fixes his eyes on so lowly a creature as I am to make her so great. O oh, humility! here exclaims the abbot Guerrick, as nothing in its own eyes, yet sufficiently great for the divinity. Insufficient for itself, sufficient for him whom the heavens cannot contain. O great humility of Mary, which makes her little to herself, but great before God. Unworthy in her own eyes, but worthy in the eyes of that immense Lord whom the world cannot contain. But the exclamation of St. Bernard on this subject is still more beautiful in his fourth sermon on the Assumption of Mary, in which admiring her humility, he says, And how, O lady, couldst thou unite in thy heart so humble an opinion of thyself with so great purity, with such innocence, and so great a plentitude of grace as thou didst possess? And how, O blessed virgin, continues the saint, did this humility and so great humility ever take so deep root in thy heart, seeing thyself thus honored and exalted by God? Whence thy humility, and so great humility, O blessed one. Lucifer, seeing himself endowed with great beauty, aspired to exalt his throne above the stars, and to make himself like God. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Oh, what would that proud spirit have said? And to what would he have aspired, had he ever been adorned with the gifts of Mary? The humble Mary did not act thus. The higher she saw herself raised, the more she humbled herself. Ah, lady, concludes St. Bernard, by this admirable humility thou didst indeed render thyself worthy to be regarded by God with singular love, worthy to captivate thy king with thy beauty, worthy to draw, by the sweet odor of thy humility, 
the eternal sun from his repose, from the bosom of God, into thy most pure womb. She was indeed worthy to be looked upon by the Lord, whose beauty the king so greatly desired, and by whose most sweet odor he was drawn from the eternal repose of his father's bosom. Hence Bernadine de Bustis says that Mary merited more by saying with humility, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, than all pure creatures could merit together by all their good works. Thus, says St. Bernard, this innocent virgin, although she made herself dear to God by her virginity, yet it was by her humility that she rendered herself worthy, as far as a creature can be worthy, to become the mother of her Creator. Though she pleased by her virginity, she conceived by her humility. St. Jerome confirms this, saying that God chose her to be his mother more on account of her humility than all her other sublime virtues. Mary herself also assured St. Bridget of the same thing, saying, How was it that I merited so great a grace as to be made the mother of my Lord, if it was not that I knew my own nothingness, and that I had nothing, and humbled myself? This she had already declared in her canticle, breathing forth the most profound humility, when she said, Because he hath regarded the humility of his handmaid, he that is mighty hath done great things to me. On these words St. Lawrence Justinian remarks that the Blessed Virgin did not say he hath regarded the virginity or the innocence, but only the humility, and by this humility as St. Francis de Sales observes, Mary did not mean to praise the virtue of her own humility, but she meant to declare that God had regarded her nothingness, humility, that is nothingness, and that out of his pure goodness he had been pleased thus to exalt her. In fine, St. Augustine says that Mary's humility was a ladder by which our Lord deigned to descend from heaven to earth, to become man in her womb. Mary's humility, he says, became a heavenly ladder by which God came into the world. This is confirmed by St. Antoninus, who says that the humility of Mary was her most perfect virtue, and the one that immediately prepared her to become the mother of God. The last grace of perfection is preparation for the conception of the Son of God, which preparation is made by profound humility. The prophet Isaiah foretold the same thing, And there shall come forth a rod out of the root of Jesse, and a flower shall rise up out of his root. Blessed Albert the Great remarks on these words, that the divine flower, that is to say the only begotten Son of God, was to be born not from the summit nor from the trunk of the tree of Jesse, but from the root, precisely to denote the humility of the mother. By the root, humility of heart is understood. The abbot of Salay explains it more clearly still, saying, Remark that the flower rises not from the summit, but out of the root. For this reason God said to his beloved daughter, Turn away thy eyes from me, for they have made me flee away. St. Augustine asks, Whence have they made thee flee, unless it be from the bosom of thy father into the womb of thy mother? 
On this same thought, the learned interpreter Fernandez says that the most humble eyes of Mary, which she always kept fixed on the divine greatness, never losing sight of her own nothingness, did such violence to God himself that they drew him into her womb. Her most humble eyes held God in such a way captive that the Blessed Virgin, with a kind of most sweet violence, drew the word himself of God, the Father, into her womb. Thus it is that we can understand, says the abbot Franco, why the Holy Ghost praised the beauty of this his spouse so greatly on account of her dove's eyes. How beautiful art thou, my love! How beautiful art thou! Thine eyes are dove's eyes. For Mary, looking at God with the eyes of a simple and humble dove, enamored him to such a degree by her beauty that with the bands of love she made him a prisoner in her chaste womb. The abbot thus speaks, Where on earth could so beautiful a virgin be found, who could allure the King of Heaven by her eyes, and by a holy violence lead him captive, bound in the chains of love? So that, to conclude this point, we will remark that in the incarnation of the Eternal Word, as we have already seen at the commencement of our discourse, Mary could not have humbled herself more than she did humble herself. Let us now see how it was that God, having made her his mother, could not have exalted her more than he did exalt her. Part 2 To understand the greatness to which Mary was exalted, it would be necessary to understand the sublimity and greatness of God. It is sufficient, then, to say simply that God made this Blessed Virgin his mother to understand that God could not have exalted her more than he did exalt her. Arnold of Chartres, then, rightly asserts that God, by becoming the son of the Blessed Virgin, established her in a rank far above that of all the angels and saints, so that, with the exception of God himself, there is no one who is so greatly exalted. As St. Ephraim also asserts, her glory is incomparably greater than that of all the other celestial spirits. This is confirmed by St. Andrew of Crete, saying, God accepted, she is higher than all. St. Anselm also says, No one is equal to thee, O lady, for all are either above or beneath thee. God alone is above thee, and all that is not God is inferior to thee. In fine, says St. Bernardine, the greatness and dignity of this Blessed Virgin are such that God alone does and can comprehend it. In this reflection we have more than sufficient, remarks St. Thomas of Villanova, to take away the surprise which might be caused on seeing that the sacred evangelists, who have so fully recorded the praises of a John the Baptist and of a Magdalene, say so little of the precious gifts of Mary. It was sufficient to say of her, Of whom was born Jesus? What more could you wish the evangelist to have said of the greatness of this blessed virgin? Continues the saint. Is it not enough that they declare that she was the mother of God? In these few words they recorded the greatest, the whole of her precious gifts. And since the whole was therein contained, it was unnecessary to enter into details. And why not, 
St. Anselm replies that when we say of Mary, she is the mother of God, this alone transcends every greatness that can be named or imagined after that of God. Peter of Chalet, on the same subject, adds, Address her as Queen of Heaven, Sovereign Mistress of the Angels, or any other title of honor you may please, but never can you honor her so much as by simply calling her the Mother of God. The reason for this is evident, for, as the angelic doctor teaches, the nearer a thing approaches its author, the greater is the perfection that it receives from him. And therefore, Mary, being of all creatures the nearest to God, she, more than all others, has partaken of his graces, perfections, and greatness. He says, The Blessed Virgin Mary was the nearest possible to Christ, for from her it was that he received his human nature, and therefore she must have obtained a greater plentitude of grace from him than all others. To this Father Suarez traces the reason for which the dignity of Mother of God is above every other created dignity. For he says, It belongs in a certain way to the order of hypostatic union, for it intrinsically appertains to it, and has a necessary conjunction with it. The Glories of Mary will continue on the second side of the tape. Hence, the Kurth asserts after the hypostatic there is meant than that of the of God's Son, says teaches, is the supreme, the highest degree of union that a pure creature can have with God. It is a sort of supreme union with an infinite person. Blessed Albert the Great also asserts that to be the mother of God is the highest dignity after that of being God. Hence he adds that Mary could not have been more closely united to God than she was without becoming God. St. Bernadine says that to become mother of God, the Blessed Virgin had to be raised to a sort of equality with the divine persons by an almost infinity of graces. And as children are, normally speaking, regarded one with their parents so that their properties and honors are in common, it follows, says St. Peter Damien, that God, who dwells in creatures in different ways, dwelt in Mary in an especial way, and was singularly identified with her, making himself one and the same thing with her. The fourth mode, he says, in which God is in a creature is that of identity, and this he is in the Blessed Virgin Mary, for he is one with her. Thence he exclaims in those celebrated words, let every creature be silent and tremble, and scarcely dare glance at the immensity of so great a dignity. God dwells in the Blessed Virgin, with whom he has the identity of one nature. Therefore St. Thomas asserts that when Mary became Mother of God, by reason of so close a union with an infinite good, she received a dignity which Father Suarez calls infinite in its kind. 
The dignity of Mother of God is the greatest dignity that can be conferred on a pure creature. For although the angelic doctor teaches that even the humanity of Jesus Christ could have received greater habitual grace from God, since grace is a created gift, and therefore its essence is finite. For all creatures have a determined measure of capacity, so that it is yet in God's power to make another creature whose determined measure is greater. Yet since his humanity was destined to a personal union with the divine person, it could not have for its subject anything greater, or, as the saint expresses himself in another place, though the divine power could create something greater and better than the habitual grace of Christ, nevertheless it could not destine it to anything greater than the personal union of the only begotten Son of the Father. Thus, on the other hand, the Blessed Virgin could not have been raised to a greater dignity than that of Mother of God, which dignity is in a certain manner infinite, inasmuch as God is an infinite good. In this respect, then, she could not have been made greater. St. Thomas of Villanova says the same thing. There is something infinite in being the mother of him who is infinite. St. Bernadine also says that the state to which God exalted Mary in making her his mother was the highest state that could be conferred on a pure creature, so that he could not have exalted her more. This opinion is confirmed by Blessed Albert the Great, who says that in bestowing on Mary the maternity of God, God gave her the highest gift of which a pure creature is capable. We now continue with the glories of Mary. Discourse 4, the Annunciation of Mary. Hence that celebrated saying of St. Bonaventure, that to be the mother of God is the greatest grace that can be conferred on a creature. It is such that God could make a greater world, a greater heaven, but that he cannot exalt a creature more than by making her his mother. But no one has so well expressed the greatness of the dignity to which God has raised her as the Divine Mother herself when she said, He that is mighty hath done great things in me. And why did not the Blessed Virgin make known what were the great things conferred on her by God? St. Thomas of Villanova answers that Mary did not explain them because they could not be expressed. She did not explain them because they were inexplicable. Hence, St. Bernard with reason says that for this Blessed Virgin, who was to be his mother, God created the whole world, and St. Bonaventure, that its existence depends on her will. He says, addressing her, the world which thou with God didst form from the beginning continues to exist at thy will, O most holy virgin. The saint adhering in this to the words of Proverbs applied by the church to Mary, I was with him forming all things. St. Bernardine adds that it was for the love of Mary that God did not destroy man after Adam's sin. He preserved it on account of his most singular love for this blessed virgin. Hence the Holy Ghost with reason sings of Mary. She has chosen the best part. For this virgin mother not only chose the best things, but she chose the best part of the best things, God endowing her in the highest degree, as blessed Albert the Great asserts, with all the general and particular graces and gifts 
conferred on all other creatures in consequence of the dignity granted her of the divine maternity. Thus Mary was a child, but of this state she had only the innocence, not the defect of incapacity. For from the very first moment of her existence she had always the perfect use of reason. She was a virgin without the reproach of sterility. She was a mother, but at the same time possessed the precious treasure of virginity. She was, she beautiful. was beautiful, even most beautiful, as Richard of St. Victor asserts, with St. George of Nicomedia and St. Denis the Ariabakite, who, as it is believed, had the happiness of once beholding her beauty, and he declared that had not faith taught him that she was only a creature, he should have adored her as God. Our Lord himself also revealed to St. Bridget that the beauty of his mother surpassed that of all men and angels. Allowing the saint to hear him addressing Mary, he said, Thy beauty exceeds that of all angels and of all created things. She was most beautiful, I say, but without prejudice to those who looked upon her, for her beauty banished all evil thoughts, and even enkindled pure ones, as St. Ambrose attests. So great was her grace that not only it preserved her own virginity, but conferred that admirable gift of purity on those who beheld her. This is confirmed by St. Thomas, who says that sanctifying grace not only repressed all irregular motions in the Blessed Virgin herself, but was also efficacious for others, so that, notwithstanding the greatness of her beauty, she was never coveted by others. For this reason she was called myrrh, which prevents corruption, in the words of Ecclesiasticus applied to her by the Church. I yielded a sweet odor like the best myrrh. The labors of active life, when engaged in them, did not interrupt her union with God. In her contemplative life she was wrapped in Him, but not so as to cause her to neglect her temporal affairs and the charity due to her neighbor. She had to die, but her death was unaccompanied by its usual sorrows, and not followed by the corruption of the body. In conclusion, then, this Divine Mother is infinitely inferior to God, but immensely superior to all creatures, and, as it is impossible to find a son more noble than Jesus, so it is also impossible to find a mother more noble than Mary. This reflection should cause the clients of so great a queen not only to rejoice in her greatness, but should also increase their confidence in her powerful patronage. For, says Father Suarez, as she is mother of God, she has a certain peculiar right to his gifts, to dispense them to those for whom she prays. St. Germanus, on the other hand, says that God cannot do otherwise than grant the petitions of this mother, for he cannot but acknowledge her for his true and immaculate mother. Here are his words addressed to the Blessed Virgin. For thou, who by thy maternal authority hast great power with God, obtainest the very great grace of reconciliation, even for those who have been guilty of grievous crimes. It is impossible that thou shouldst not be graciously heard, for God in all things complies with thy wishes as being those of his true and spotless mother. Therefore, power to succor us 
is not wanting to thee, O Mother of God, and Mother of us all. The will is not wanting, neither the power nor the will can fail her. For thou well knowest, will I say, addressing thee, in the words of thy servant, the abbot of Chalet, that God did not create thee for himself only. He gave thee to the angels as their restorer, to men as their repairer, to the devils as their vanquisher. For through thy means we recover divine grace, and by thee the enemy is conquered and crushed. If we really desire to please the Divine Mother, let us often salute her with the Hail Mary. She once appeared to St. Matilda and assured her that she was honored by nothing more than by this salutation. By its means we shall certainly obtain even special graces from this Mother of Mercy, as will be seen in the following example. Example The event recorded by Father Paul Signeri in his Christian Instructed is justly celebrated. A young man, of vicious habits and laden with sins, went to confession to Father Nicholas Zucchi in Rome. The confessor received him with charity, and, filled with compassion for his unfortunate state, assured him that devotion to our Blessed Lady could deliver him from the accursed vice to which he was addicted. He therefore imposed on him as his penance that he should say a Hail Mary to the Blessed Virgin every morning and evening on getting up and on going to bed until his next confession, and at the same time that he should offer her his eyes, his hands, and his whole body, beseeching her to preserve them as something belonging to herself, and that he should kiss the ground three times. The young man performed the penance, but at first there was only slight amendment. The father, however, continued to inculcate the same practice on him, desiring him never to abandon it, and at the same time encouraged him to confide in the patronage of Mary. In the meantime the penitent left Rome with other companions, and during several years traveled in different parts of the world. On his return he again sought out his confessor, who, to his great joy and admiration, found that he was entirely changed and free from his formal evil habits. My son, said he, how hast thou obtained so wonderful a change from God? The young man replied, Father, our blessed lady obtained me this grace on account of that little devotion which thou taughtest me. Wonders. Wonders did not cease here. The same confessor related the above fact from the pulpit. A captain heard it, who for many years had carried an, on improper intercourse with a certain woman and determined that he also would practice the same devotion, that he too might be delivered from the horrible chains which bound him a slave of the devil. For it is necessary that sinners should have this intention in order that the Blessed Virgin may be able to help them. And he also gave up his wickedness and changed his life. But still more, after six months, he foolishly, and relying too much on his own strength, went to pay a visit to the woman, to see if she also was converted. But on coming up to the door of the house, where he was in manifest danger of relapsing into sin, he was driven back by an invisible power, and found himself as far from the house as the whole length of the street, and standing before his own door. He was then clearly given to understand that Mary had thus delivered him from perdition. 
From this we may learn how solicitous our good mother is, not only to withdraw us from a state of sin if we recommend ourselves to her for this purpose, but also to deliver us from the danger of relapsing into it. Prayer O Immaculate and Holy Virgin, O creature, the most humble and the most exalted before God, thou wast so lowly in thine own eyes, but so great in the eyes of thy Lord, that he exalted thee to such a degree as to choose thee for his mother, and then made thee queen of heaven and earth. I therefore thank God, who so greatly has exalted thee, and rejoice in seeing thee so closely united with him, that more cannot be granted to a pure creature. Before thee, who art so humble, though endowed with so precious gifts, I am ashamed to appear. I, who am so proud in the midst of so many sins, but miserable as I am, I will also salute thee. Hail Mary, full of grace. Thou art already full of grace. Impart a portion of it to me. Our Lord is with thee. That Lord, who was always with thee from the first moment of thy creation, has now united himself more closely to thee by becoming thy son. Blessed art thou amongst women. O lady, blessed art thou amongst all women. Obtain the divine blessing also for us. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb. O blessed plant which hath given to the world so noble and holy a fruit. Holy Mary, Mother of God, O Mary, I acknowledge that thou art the true Mother of God, and in defense of this truth I am ready to give my life a thousand times. Pray for us sinners. But if thou art the Mother of God, thou art also the Mother of our salvation, and of us poor sinners, since God became man to save sinners, and made thee his Mother, that thy prayers might have power to save any sinner. Hasten then, O Mary, and pray for us, now and at the hour of our death. Pray always, pray now that we should live in the midst of so many temptations and dangers of losing God, but still more, pray for us at the hour of our death, when we are on the point of leaving this world and being presented before God's tribunal, that being saved by the merits of Jesus Christ and by thy intercession, we may come one day without further danger of being lost, to salute thee and praise thee with thy Son in heaven for all eternity. Amen. Discourse 5. The Visitation of Mary. July 2. Mary is the treasurer of all divine graces. Therefore, whoever desires graces must have recourse to Mary, and he who has recourse to Mary may be sure of obtaining the graces that he desires. Fortunate does that family consider itself which is visited by a royal personage, both on account of the honor that redounds from such a visit and the advantages that may be hoped to accrue from it. But still more fortunate should that soul consider itself that is visited by the Queen of the world, the Most Holy Virgin Mary, who cannot but fill with riches and graces those blessed souls whom she deigns to visit by her favors. The house uh -huh. of Obededom was blessed when visited by the ark of God, and the Lord blessed his house. 
But with how much greater blessings are those persons enriched who receive a loving visit from this living ark of God, for such was the Divine Mother. Happy is that house which the Mother of God visits, says Engelgrave. This was abundantly experienced by the house of St. John the Baptist, for Mary had scarcely entered it when she heaped graces and heavenly benedictions on the whole family, and for this reason the present feast of the visitation is commonly called that of our Blessed Lady of Graces. Hence we shall see in the present discourse that the Divine Mother is the treasurer of all graces. We shall divide the subject in two parts. In the first we shall see that whoever desires graces must have recourse to Mary. In the second, that he who has recourse to Mary should be confident of receiving the graces he desires. Part 1 After the Blessed Virgin had heard from the Archangel Gabriel that her cousin St. Elizabeth had been six months pregnant, she was internally delighted by the Holy Ghost to know that the Incarnate Word, who had become her son, was pleased then to manifest to the world the riches of his mercy in the first graces that he desired to impart to all that family. Therefore, without interposing any delay, according to St. Luke, Mary, rising up, went into the hill country with haste. Rising from the quiet of contemplation to which she was always devoted, and quitting her beloved solitude, she immediately set out for the dwelling of St. Elizabeth, and because charity beareth all things, and cannot support delay, as St. Ambrose remarks in, on this gospel, the Holy Ghost knows not slow undertakings. Without even reflecting on the ardorness of the journey, this tender virgin, I say, immediately undertook it. On reaching the house, she salutes her cousin, and she entered into the house of Zachary and saluted Elizabeth. St. Ambrose here remarks that Mary was first to salute Elizabeth. The visit of Mary, however, had no resemblance of those of worldlings, which, for the greater part, consist in ceremony and outward demonstrations devoid of all sincerity, for it brought with it an accumulation of graces. The moment she entered that dwelling, on her first salutation, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and St. John was cleansed from original sin and sanctified and therefore gave this mark of joy by leaping in his mother's womb, wishing thereby to manifest the grace that he had received by the means of the Blessed Virgin, as St. Elizabeth herself declared, As soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Thus, as Bernadine de Bustis remarks, by virtue of Mary's salutation, St. John received the grace of the Divine Spirit which sanctified him. When the Blessed Virgin saluted Elizabeth, the voice of the salutation entering her ears descended to the child, and by its virtue he received the Holy Ghost. And now, if all these first fruits of redemption passed through Mary as the channel through which grace was communicated to the Baptist, the Holy Ghost to Elizabeth the gift of prophecy to Zachary, and so many other blessings to the whole house, the first graces that, to our knowledge, the eternal word had granted on earth after his incarnation, it is quite correct to believe that thenceforward God made Mary the universal channel 
as she is called by St. Bernard, through which all other graces that our Lord is pleased to dispense to us should pass, as we have already declared in the fifth chapter of the first part of this work. With reason, then, is this Divine Mother called the treasure, the treasurer, and the dispenser of divine graces. She is thus called by the venerable abbot of Salé, the treasure of God and the treasurer of graces, by St. Peter Damien, the treasure of divine graces, by Blessed Albert the Great, the treasurer of Jesus Christ, by St. Bernadine, the dispenser of graces, by a learned Greek quoted by Petavius, the storehouse of all good things, so also by St. Gregory Thamaturgus, who observes that Mary is said to be thus full of grace, for in her all the treasures of graces were hidden. Richard of St. Lawrence also says that Mary is a treasure, because God has placed all gifts of graces in her as in a treasury, and thence he bestows great stipends on his soldiers and laborers. She is a treasury of mercies, whence our Lord enriches his servants. St. Bonaventure, speaking of the field in the gospel in which a treasure is hidden, and which should be purchased at however great a price, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden in a field, which a man, having found it, hid it, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Says that our Queen Mary is this field in which Jesus Christ, the treasure of God the Father, is hid and with Jesus Christ, the source and flowing fountain of all graces. St. Bernard affirms that our Lord has deposited the plentitude of every grace in Mary, that we may thus know that if we possess hope, grace, or anything salutary, that it is from her that it came. Of this we are also assured by Mary herself, saying, In me is all grace of the way and of the truth. In me are all the graces of real blessings that you men can desire in life. Yes, sweet mother in our hope, we know full well, says St. Peter Damien, that all the treasures of divine mercies are in thy hands. Before St. Peter Damien, St. Ildefonsus asserted the same thing in even stronger terms, when, speaking to the Blessed Virgin, he said, O lady, all the graces that God has decreed for men he has determined to grant through thy hands, and therefore to thee has he committed all the treasures and ornaments of grace. So that, O Mary, concludes St. Germanus, no grace is dispensed to any one otherwise than through thy hands. There is no one saved but by thee, no one who receives a gift of God but through thee. Blessed Albert the Great makes a beautiful paraphrase of the words of the angel addressed to the Most Blessed Virgin. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found grace with God. Fear not, O Mary, for thou hast found, not taken, grace, as Lucifer tried to take it. Thou hast not lost it, as Adam lost it. Thou hast not bought it, as Simon Magus would have bought it. But thou hast found it, because thou hast desired and sought it. Thou hast found uncreated grace, that is, God himself become thy son, and with that grace thou hast found and obtained every created good. St. Peter Chrysologus confirms this thought, saying, 
This great virgin and mother found grace to restore thereby salvation to all men. And elsewhere he says that Mary found a grace so full that it sufficed to save all. Thou hast found grace, but how great a grace! It was such that it filled thee, and so great was its plentitude that it could be poured down as a torrent on every creature. So much so indeed, says Richard of St. Lawrence, that as God made the sun, that by its means light might be diffused through the whole earth, so he made Mary, that by her all divine mercies may be dispensed to the world. St. Bernardine adds that from the time that the Virgin Mother conceived the divine word in her womb, she obtained a kind of jurisdiction, so to say, over all the temporal manifestations of the Holy Ghost, so that no creature can obtain any grace from God that is not dispensed by this tender and compassionate mother. Hence, let us conclude this point in the words of Richard of St. Lawrence, who says that if we wish to obtain any grace, we must have recourse to Mary, the finder of grace, who cannot but obtain all that she asks for her servants, for she has recovered the divine grace which was lost, and always finds it. This thought he borrowed from St. Bernard, who says, Let us seek for grace, and seek it by Mary, for that which she seeks she finds, and cannot be frustrated. If we then desire graces, we must go to this treasurer and dispenser of graces, for it is the sovereign will of the giver of every good thing, and we are assured of it by the same St. Bernard that all graces should be dispensed by the hands of Mary. For such is his will, who is pleased that we should have all by Mary. All, all, and he who says all excludes nothing. Part 2 But because confidence is necessary to obtain graces, we will now consider how sure ought we to feel of obtaining them when we have recourse to Mary. Why did Jesus Christ deposit all the riches of mercy that he intends for us in the hands of his mother, unless it was that she might therewith enrich all her clients who love her, who honor her, and who have recourse to her with confidence? With me are riches, that I may enrich them that love me. Thus the Blessed Virgin herself assures us that it is so in this passage which the Holy Church applies to her on so many of her festivals. Therefore, for no other purpose than to serve us, says the Abbot Adam, are those riches of eternal life kept by Mary, in whose breast our Lord has deposited the treasure of the miserable, and that the poor being supplied from it may become rich, the riches of salvation are in custody of the Blessed Virgin for our use. Christ has made Mary's womb the treasury of the poor, thence the poor are enriched. And St. Bernard says that she is a full aqueduct that others may receive of her plentitude. Mary was therefore given to the world that her graces might continually descend from heaven upon men. Hence the same Holy Father goes on to ask, but why did St. Gabriel, having found the Divine Mother already full of grace, according to the, his salutation, hail, full of grace, afterwards say that the Holy Ghost would come upon her to fill her still more with grace? If she was already full of grace, what more could the coming of the Divine Spirit effect? The saint answers, 
Mary was already full of grace, but the Holy Ghost filled her to overflowing for our good, that from her superabundance we miserable creatures might be provided. For this same reason Mary was called the moon, of which it is said, She is full for herself and others. He that shall find me shall find life, and shall have salvation from the Lord. Blessed is he who finds me by having recourse to me, says our mother. He will find life, and will find it easily, for as it is easy to find and draw as much water as we please from a great fountain, so is it easy to find graces and eternal salvation by having recourse to Mary. A holy soul once said, We have only to seek graces from our blessed lady to receive them. St. Bernard also says that it was because the blessed virgin was not yet born that in ancient times the great abundance of grace which we now see flow on the world was wanting. For Mary, this desirable channel did not exist. But now that we have this mother of mercy, what graces are there that we need fear not to obtain when we cast ourselves at her feet? I am the city of refuge, thus St. John Damascene makes her speak, for all those who have recourse to me. Come then to me, my children, for from me you will obtain graces, and these in greater abundance than you can possibly imagine. It is true that that which the sister Mary Villani saw in a celestial vision is experienced by many. This servant of God once saw the Divine Mother as a great fountain, to which many went, and from it they carried off the waters of grace in great abundance. But what then happened? Those who had sound jars preserved the graces they received, but those who brought broken vessels, that is to say, those whose souls were burdened with sin, received graces, but did not long preserve them. It is, however, certain that men, even those who are ungrateful sinners and the most miserable, daily obtain innumerable graces from Mary. St. Augustine, addressing the Blessed Virgin, says, Through thee do the miserable obtain mercy, the ungracious grace, sinners pardon, the weak strength, the worldly heavenly things, mortals life, and pilgrims their country. Let us then, O devout clients of Mary, rouse ourselves to greater and greater confidence each time that we have recourse to her for graces. That we may do so, let us always remember two great prerogatives of this good mother, her great desire to do us good, and the power she has with her son to obtain whatever she asks. To be convinced of the desire that Mary has to be of service to all, we need only consider the mystery of the present festival, that is, Mary's visit to St. Elizabeth. The journey from Nazareth, where the Most Blessed Virgin lived, to the city of Hebron, which St. Luke calls a city of Judea, and in which, according to Baronius and other authors, St. Elizabeth resided, was at least sixty-nine miles long, as we learn from Brother Joseph of Jesus Mary, the author of A Life of the Blessed Virgin. Beatty and Bracardus. But notwithstanding the artistness of the undertaking, the Blessed Virgin, tender and delicate as she then was, and unaccustomed to such fatigue, did not delay her departure. 
And what was it that impelled her? It was that great charity with which her most tender heart was ever filled that drove her, so to say, to go and at once begin her great office of dispenser of graces. Precisely thus does St. Ambrose speak of her journey. She did not go in an incredulity of the prophecy, but glad to do what she had undertaken. It was joy that hastened her steps, in fulfillment of a religious office. The saint thereby meaning that she did not undertake the journey to inquire into the truth of what the angel had pronounced to her of the pregnancy of St. Elizabeth, but exulting in the greatness of her desire to be the, of service to that family, and hastening for the joy she felt in doing good to others, and wholly intent on that work of charity. Rising, she went with haste. Here let it be observed, the evangelist, in speaking of Mary's departure for the house of Elizabeth, says that she went with haste, but when he speaks of her return, he no longer says anything of haste, but simply that Mary abode with her about three months, and she returned to her own house. What other object, then, asks St. Bonaventure, could the mother of God have had in view, when she hastened to visit the house of St. John the Baptist, if it was not the desire to render service to that family? What caused her to hasten in the performance of that act of charity, but the charity which burnt in her heart? This charity of Mary towards men certainly did not cease when she went to heaven. Nay more, it greatly increased there, for there she knew better her wants, and still has greater compassion of our miseries. Bernadine de Bustis writes that Mary desires more earnestly to do us good and grant us graces than we desire to receive them. So much so that St. Bonaventure says that she considers herself offended by those who do not ask for her graces. Not only those, O lady, offend thee who outrage thee, but thou art also offended by those who neglect to ask thy favors. For Mary's desire to enrich all with graces is, so to say, a part of her nature, and she superabundantly enriches her servants, as blessed Raymond Giordano affirms. Mary is God's treasure, and the treasurer of his graces. She plentifully endows her servants with choice gifts. Hence the same author says that he who finds Mary finds every good. And he adds that every one can find her, even the most miserable sinner in the world. For she is so benign that she rejects none who have recourse to her. Her benignity is such that no one need fear to approach her, and her mercy is so great that no one meets with a repulse. Thomas A. Kempis makes her say, I invite all to have recourse to me. I expect all, I desire all, and I never despise any sinner, however unworthy he may be, who comes to seek my aid. Richard of St. Lawrence says that whoever goes to ask graces from Mary finds her always prepared to help. That is, she is always ready and inclined to help us and to obtain for us every grace of eternal salvation by her powerful prayers. I say by her powerful prayers, for another reflection which should increase our confidence is that we know and are certain that she obtains from God all that she asks for her clients. Observe especially, says St. Bonaventure, in this visit of Mary to St. Elizabeth, 
the great power of her words. According to the evangelist, at the sound of her voice, the grace of the Holy Ghost was conferred on St. Elizabeth, as well as on her son, St. John the Baptist. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the infant leaped in her womb, and she was filled with the Holy Ghost. On this text, St. Bonaventure says, See how great is the power of the words of Our Lady, for no sooner has she pronounced them than the Holy Ghost is given. Theophilus of Alexandria says that Jesus is greatly pleased when Mary intercedes with him for us, for all the graces which he is, so to say, forced to grant through her prayers, he considers as granted not so much to us as to herself. And remark the words, forced by the prayers of his mother. Yes, for, as St. Germanus attests, Jesus cannot do otherwise than graciously accede to all that Mary asks, wishing, as it were, in this to obey her as his true mother. Hence the saint says that the prayers of this mother have a certain maternal authority with Jesus Christ, so that she obtains the grace of pardon even for those who have been guilty of grievous crimes and commend themselves to her. And then he concludes, For it is not possible that thou shouldst not be graciously heard, for God in all things acts towards thee as his true and spotless mother. This is fully confirmed as St. John Chrysostom observes, by what took place at the marriage feast of Cana, when Mary asks her son for wine which had failed. They have no wine. Jesus answered, Woman, what is that to me and to thee? My hour is not yet come. But though the time for miracles was not yet come, as St. Chrysostom and Theophylact explain it, yet, says St. Chrysostom, the Saviour, notwithstanding his answer, and to obey his mother, worked the miracle she asked for, and converted the water into wine. Let us go, therefore, with confidence to the throne of grace, says the Apostle, exhorting us, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid. The throne of grace is the Blessed Virgin Mary, says Blessed Albert the Great. If, then, we wish for graces, let us go to the throne of grace, which is Mary, and let us go with the certain hope of being heard. For we have Mary's intercession, and she obtains from her Son all whatever she asks. Let us seek for grace, I repeat with St. Bernard, and let us seek it through Mary, trusting to what the Blessed Virgin Mother herself said to St. Matilda, that the Holy Ghost, filling her with all his sweetness, has rendered her so dear to God that whoever seeks graces through her intercession is certain to obtain them. And if we credit that celebrated saying of St. Anselm, that salvation is occasionally more easily obtained by calling on the name of Mary than by invoking that of Jesus, we shall sometimes sooner obtain graces by having recourse to Mary than by having directly recourse to our Savior Jesus himself. Not that he is not the source and Lord of all graces, but because when we have recourse to the mother and she prays for us, her prayers have greater efficacy than ours as being those of a mother. Let us then never leave the feet of this treasurer of graces, but ever address her in the words of St. John Damascene, O blessed Mother of God, 
open to us the gate of mercy, for Thou art the salvation of the human race. O Mother of God, open to us the door of Thy compassion by always praying for us, for Thy prayers are the salvation of all men. When we have recourse to Mary, it would be advisable to entreat her to ask and obtain us the graces which she knows to be the most expedient for our salvation. This is precisely what the Dominican brother Reginald did, as it is related in the Chronicles of the Order. This servant of Mary was ill, and he asked her to obtain him the recovery of his health. His sovereign lady appeared to him, accompanied by St. Sicily and St. Catherine, and said with the greatest sweetness, My son, what dost thou desire of me? The religious was confused at so gracious an offer on the part of Mary, and knew not what to answer. Then one of the saints gave him this advice, Reginald, I will tell thee what to do. Ask for nothing, but place thyself entirely in her hands, for Mary will know how to grant thee a greater grace than thou canst possibly ask. The sick man followed this advice, and the Divine Mother obtained the re-establishment of his health. But if we also desire the happiness of receiving the visits of this Queen of Heaven, we should often visit her by going before her image, or praying to her in churches dedicated to her honor. We will continue on the next tape. We now continue with the glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. Read the following example in which you will see with what special favors she rewards the devout visits of her clients. Example. A certain cavalier named Ansald of the city of Dole in France received in battle a wound from an arrow which entered so deep into the jawbone that it was not possible to extract the iron point which remained. After four years, the poor man, unable any longer to endure the torment, and being besides very ill, thought of having the wound reopened, that the surgeons might again try to extract the iron. He recommended himself to the Blessed Virgin, and made a vow that he would every year visit a devout image of Mary, which was in that place, and make an offering of a certain sum of money, should she grant his prayer. He had no sooner made the vow than he felt the iron drop of its own accord into his mouth. On the following day, ill as he was, he went to visit the image, and scarcely had he placed his offering on the altar when he found himself entirely restored to health. Prayer Immaculate and Blessed Virgin, since thou art the universal dispenser of all graces, Thou art the hope of all, and my hope. I will ever thank my Lord for having granted me the grace to know Thee, and for having shown me the means by which I may obtain the graces and be saved. Thou art this means, O great Mother of God, for I now understand that it is principally through the merits of Jesus Christ, and then through Thy intercession that my soul must be saved. Ah, my queen, thou didst hasten so greatly to visit, and by that means didst sanctify the dwelling of St. Elizabeth. Deign then to visit, and visit quickly the poor house of my soul. Ah, hasten then, 
for thou well knowest, and far better than I do, how poor it is, and with how many maladies it is afflicted, with disordered affections, evil habits, and sins committed, all of which are pestiferous and diseases, which would lead it to eternal death. Thou canst enrich it, O treasurer of God, and thou canst heal all its infirmities. Visit me then in life, and visit me especially at the moment of death, for then I shall more than ever require thy aid. I do not indeed expect, neither am I worthy, that thou shouldst visit me on this earth with thy visible presence, as thou hast visited so many of thy servants, but they were not unworthy and ungrateful as I am. I am satisfied to see thee in thy kingdom of heaven, there to be able to love thee more, and thank thee for all that thou hast done for me. At present I am satisfied that thou shouldst visit me with thy mercy. Thy prayers are all that I desire. Pray then, O Mary, for me, and commend me to thy Son. Thou, far better than I do, knowest my miseries and my wants. What more can I say? Pity me. I am so miserable and ignorant that I neither know nor can I seek for the graces that I stand in most need of. My most sweet Queen and Mother, do thou seek and obtain for me from thy Son those graces which thou knowest to be the most expedient and necessary for my soul. I abandon myself entirely into thy hands, and only beg the Divine Majesty that by the merits of my Saviour Jesus he will grant me the graces which thou askest him for me. Ask, ask then, O most holy Virgin, that which thou seest best for me. Thy prayers are never rejected. They are the prayers of a mother addressed to a son who loves thee, his mother, so much, and rejoices in doing all that thou desirest, that he may honor thee more, and at the same time show thee the great love that he bears thee. Let us make an agreement, O lady, that while I live confiding in thee, thou, on thy part, wilt charge thyself with my salvation. Amen. Discourse 6. The Purification of Mary. February 2nd. The great sacrifice which Mary made on this day to God in offering him the life of her son. In the old law, there were two precepts concerning the birth of the firstborn sons. One was that the mother should remain as unclean, retired in her house for forty days, after which she was to go to purify herself in the temple. The other was that the parents of the firstborn son should take him to the temple and there offer him to God. On this day the Most Blessed Virgin obeyed both these precepts. Although Mary was not bound by the law of purification, since she was always a virgin and always pure, yet her humility and obedience made her wish to go like other mothers to purify herself. She at the same time obeyed the second precept, to present and offer her son to the Eternal Father. And after the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they carried him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. But the Blessed Virgin did not offer him as other mothers offered their sons. Others offered them to God, 
but they knew that this obligation was simply a legal ceremony, and that by redeeming them they made them their own, without fear of having again to offer them to death. Mary really offered her son to death, and knew for certain that the sacrifice of the life of Jesus which she then made was one day to be actually consummated on the altar of the cross, so that Mary, by offering the life of her son, came in consequence of the love she bore this son, really to sacrifice her own entire self to God, leaving then aside all other considerations into which we might enter on the many mysteries of this festival, we will only consider the greatness of the sacrifice which Mary made of herself to God in offering him on this day the life of her son. And this will be the whole subject of the following discourse. The Eternal Father had already determined to save man who was lost by sin and to deliver him from eternal death. But because he willed at that same time that his divine justice should not be defrauded of a worthy and due satisfaction, he spared not the life of his son, already become man, to redeem man, but willed that he should pay with the utmost rigor the penalty which man had deserved. He that spared not even his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He sent him, therefore, on earth to become man. He destined him a mother, and willed that this mother should be the Blessed Virgin Mary. But as he willed not that his divine word should become her son before she, by an express consent, had accepted him, so also he willed not that Jesus should sacrifice his life for the salvation of men without the concurrent assent of Mary, that together with the sacrifice of the life of the son, the mother's heart might also be sacrificed. St. Thomas teaches that the quality of a mother gives her a special right over her children. Hence, Jesus, being in himself innocent and undeserving of punishment, it seemed fitting that he should not be condemned to the cross as a victim for the sins of the world without the consent of his mother, by which she should spontaneously offer him to death. But although from the moment she became the mother of Jesus, Mary consented to his death, Yet God willed that on this day she should make a solemn sacrifice of herself by offering her son to him in the temple, sacrificing his precious life to divine justice. Hence St. Epiphanius calls her a priest. And now we begin to see how much this sacrifice cost her, and what heroic virtues she had to practice when she herself subscribed to the sentence by which her beloved Jesus was condemned to death. Behold, Mary is actually on her road to Jerusalem to offer her son. She hastens her steps towards the place of sacrifice, and she herself bears the beloved victim in her arms. She enters the temple, approaches the altar, and there, beaming with modesty, devotion, and humility, presents her son to the Most High. In the meantime, the holy Simeon, who had received a promise from God that he should not die without having first seen the expected Messiah, takes the divine child from the hands of the Blessed Virgin, and, enlightened by the Holy Ghost, announced to her how much the sacrifice which she then made of her son would cost her, and that with him her own blessed soul would also be sacrificed. Here St. Thomas Villanova 
contemplates the holy old man becoming troubled and silent at the thought of having to give utterance to a prophecy so fatal to this poor mother. The saint then considers Mary, who asks him, Why, O Simeon, art thou thus troubled in the midst of such great consolations? O royal virgin, he replies, I would desire not to announce thee so bitter tidings, but since God thus wills it for thy greater merit, listen to what I have to say. This child, which is now such a source of joy to thee, and, O God, with how much reason, this child, I say, will one day be a source of so bitter grief to thee that no creature in the world has ever experienced the like. And this will be when thou seest him persecuted by men of every class and made a butt upon earth for their scoffs and outrages. They will even go so far as to put him to death as a malefactor before thine own eyes. Thou so greatly rejoicest in this infant, but behold, he is placed for a sign which shall be contradicted. Know that after his death there will be many martyrs, who, for the love of this son of thine, will be tormented and put to death. Their martyrdom, however, will be endured in their bodies. But thine, O Divine Mother, will be endured in thy heart. Oh, how many thousands of men will be torn to pieces and put to death for the love of this child! And although they will all suffer much in their bodies, thou, O Virgin, wilt suffer much more in thy heart. Yes, in her heart, for compassion alone for the sufferings of this most beloved son was the sword of sorrow which was to pierce the heart of the mother, as St. Simeon exactly foretold. In thy own soul a sword shall pierce. Already the most blessed Virgin, as St. Jerome says, was enlightened by the sacred scriptures and knew the sufferings that the Redeemer was to endure in his life and still more at the time of his death. She fully understood from the prophets that he was to be betrayed by one of his disciples. For even the man of my peace, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, hath greatly supplanted me. As David foretold, that he was to be abandoned by them, strike the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. She well knew the contempt, the spitting, the blows, the derisions that he was to suffer from the people. I have given my body to the strikers, and my cheeks to them that plucked them. I have not turned away my face from them that rebuked me, and that spit upon me. She knew that he was to become the reproach of men, and the outcast of the most degraded people, so as to be saturated with insults and injuries. But I am a worm, and no man, the reproach of men, and the outcast of the people. He shall be filled with reproaches. She knew that at the end of his life his most sacred flesh would be torn and mangled by scourges. He was wounded for our iniquities, he was bruised for our sins. And this to such a degree that his whole body was to be disfigured and become like that of a leper, all wounds and the bones appearing. There is no beauty in him nor comeliness, and we have thought him, as it were, a leper. They have numbered all my bones. She knew that he was to be pierced by nails. They have dug my hands and feet, to be ranked with malefactors, and was reputed with the wicked. 
and that finally hanging on a cross he was to die for the salvation of men and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced Mary I say already knew all these torments that her son was to endure but in the words addressed to her by Simeon and thy own soul a sword shall pierce all the minute circumstances of the sufferings internal and external that were to torment her Jesus in his passion were made known to her as our Lord revealed to St. Teresa. She consented to all with a constancy which filled the angels with astonishment. She pronounced the sentence that her son should die, and die by so ignominious and painful a death, saying, Eternal Father, since thou willest that it should be so, not my will, but thine be done. I unite my will to thy most holy will, and I sacrifice this my son to thee, I am satisfied that he should lose his life for thy glory and the salvation of the world. At the same time, I sacrifice my heart to thee, that it may be transpierced with sorrow, and this as much as thou pleasest. It suffices me, my God, that thou art glorified and satisfied with my offering. Not my will, but thine be done. O charity without measure! O constancy without parallel, O victory which deserves the eternal admiration of heaven and earth. Hence it was that Mary was silent during the passion of Jesus when he was unjustly accused. She said nothing to Pilate, who was somewhat inclined to set him at liberty, knowing as he did his innocence. She only appeared in public to assist at the great sacrifice which was to be accomplished on Calvary. She accompanied her beloved son to the place of execution. She was with him from the first moment when he was nailed on the cross. There stood by the cross of Jesus his mother until she saw him expire and the sacrifice was consummated. And all this she did to complete the offering which she had made of him to God in the temple. To understand the violence which Mary had to offer herself in this sacrifice it would be necessary to understand the love that this mother bore to Jesus. Generally speaking, the love of mothers is so tender towards their children that when these are at the point of death and there is fear of losing them, it causes them to forget all their faults and defects and even the injuries that they may have received from them and makes them suffer an inexpressible grief. And yet the love of these mothers is a love divided amongst other children or at least amongst other creatures. Mary had an only son, and he was the most beautiful of all the sons of Adam, most amiable, for he had everything to make him so. He was obedient, virtuous, innocent, holy. Suffice it to say, he was God. Again, his mother's love was not divided amongst other objects. She had concentrated all her love in this only son, nor did she fear to exceed in loving him, for this son was God, who merits infinite love. This son it was who was the victim that she of her own free will had to sacrifice to death. Let each one, then, consider how much it must have cost Mary, and what strength of mind she had to exercise in this act by which she sacrificed the life of so amiable a son to the cross. Behold, therefore, the most fortunate of mothers, because the mother of a God, 
but who was at the same time of all mothers the most worthy of compassion, being the most afflicted, inasmuch as she saw her son destined to the cross from the day on which he was given to her. What mother would accept of a child, knowing that she would afterwards miserably lose him by an ignominious death, and that, moreover, she herself would be present and see him thus die? Mary willingly accepts this son on so hard a condition, and not only does she accept him, but she herself on this day offers him with her own hand to death, sacrificing him to divine justice. St. Bonaventure says that the Blessed Virgin would have accepted the pains and death of her son far more willingly for herself, but to obey God she made the great offering of the divine life of her beloved Jesus, conquering, but with an excess of grief, the tender love which she bore him. Could it have been so, she would willingly have endured all the torments of her son, but it pleased God that his only begotten son should be offered for the salvation of the human race. Hence it is that in this offering Mary had to do herself more violence and was more generous than if she had offered herself to suffer all that her son was to endure. Therefore she surpassed all the martyrs in generosity, for the martyrs offered their own lives but the Blessed Virgin offered the life of her son, whom she loved and esteemed infinitely more than her own life. Nor did the sufferings of this painful offering end here, nay, even they only began, for from that time forward, during the whole of the life of her son, Mary had constantly before her eyes the death and all the torments that he was to endure. Hence, the more this son showed himself beautiful, gracious, and amiable, the more did the anguish of her heart increase. Ah, most sorrowful mother, hadst thou loved thy son less, or had he been less amiable, or had he loved thee less, thy sufferings in offering him to death would certainly have been diminished. But never there was, and never will be, a mother who loved her son more than thou didst love thine, for there never was and never will be a son more amiable, or one who loved his mother more than thy Jesus loved thee. O God, had we beheld the beauty, the majesty, and the countenance of that divine child, could we have ever had the courage to sacrifice his life for our salvation? In thou, O Mary, who wast his mother, and a mother loving him with so tender a love. Thou couldst offer thy innocent son for the salvation of men to a death more painful and cruel than ever was endured by the greatest malefactor on earth. Ah, how sad a scene from that day forward must love have continually placed before the eyes of Mary, a scene representing all the outrages and mockeries which her poor son was to endure. See, Love already represents him, agonized with sorrow in the garden, mangled with scourges, crowned with thorns in the praetorium, and finally hanging on the ignominious cross on Calvary. Behold, O mother, says love, what amiable and innocent son thou hast offered to so many torments and to so terrible a death! And to what purpose save him from the hands of Herod, since it is only to reserve him 
for a far more sorrowful end. Thus, Mary not only offered her son to death in the temple, but she renewed that offering every moment of her life, for she revealed to St. Bridget that the sorrow announced to her by the holy Simeon never left her heart until her assumption into heaven. Hence, St. Anselm thus addresses her, O compassionate lady, I cannot believe that thou couldst have endured for a moment so excruciating a torment without expiring under it, had not God himself, the spirit of life, sustained thee. But St. Bernard affirms, speaking of the great sorrow which Mary experienced on this day, that from that time forward she died living, enduring a sorrow more cruel than death. In every moment she lived dying, for in every moment she was assailed by the sorrow of the death of her beloved Jesus, which was a torment more cruel than any death. Hence the Divine Mother, on account of the great merit which she acquired by this great sacrifice which she made to God for the salvation of the world, was justly called by St. Augustine the repairer of the human race, by St. Epiphanius the redeemer of captives, by St. Anselm the repairer of a lost world, by St. Germanus our liberator from our calamities, by St. Ambrose the mother of all the faithful, by St. Augustine, the mother of the living, and by St. Andrew of Crete, the mother of life. For Arnold of Chartres says, The wills of Christ and of Mary were then united, so that both offered the same holocaust, she thereby producing with him the one effect, the salvation of the world. At the death of Jesus, Mary united her will to that of her son, so much so that both offered one and the same sacrifice. And therefore the holy abbot says that both the son and the mother affected the human redemption and obtained salvation for men, Jesus by satisfying for our sins, Mary by obtaining the application of this satisfaction to us. Hence Denneth the Carthusian also asserts that the Divine Mother can be called the Savior of the world since by the pain that she endured in commiserating her son, willingly sacrificed by her to divine justice, she merited that through her prayers the merits of the passion of the Redeemer should be communicated to men. Mary then, having by the merit of her sorrows and by sacrificing her son, become the mother of all the redeemed, it is right to believe that through her hands divine graces and the means to obtain eternal life, which are the fruits of the merits of Jesus Christ, are given to men. To this it is that St. Bernard refers when he says that when God was about to redeem the human race, he deposited the whole price in Mary's hands. By which words the saint gives us to understand that the merits of the Redeemer are applied to our souls by the intercession of the Blessed Virgin. For all graces that are the fruits of Jesus Christ were comprised in that price of which she had charge. If the sacrifice of Abraham, by which he offered his son Isaac to God, was so pleasing to the divine majesty, that as a reward he promised to multiply his descendants as the stars of heaven, because thou hast done this thing, and hast not spared thy only begotten son for my sake, I will bless thee, 
and I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. We must certainly believe that the more noble sacrifice which the great mother of God made to him of her Jesus was far more agreeable to him, and therefore that he has granted that through her prayers the number of the elect should be multiplied, that is to say, increased by the number of her fortunate children, for she considers and protects all her devout clients as such. St. Simeon received a promise from God that he should not die until he had seen the Messiah born, and he had received an answer from the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Christ of the Lord. But this grace he only received through Mary, for it was in her arms that he found the Savior. Hence he who desires to find Jesus will not find him otherwise than by Mary. Let us then go to this Divine Mother if we wish to find Jesus, and let us go with great confidence. Mary told her servant, Prudenziana Zegnani, that every year on this day of her purification a great grace would be bestowed upon some sinner. Who knows but one of us may be the favored sinner of this day? If our sins are great, the power of Mary is greater. The Son can deny nothing to such a mother, says St. Bernard. If Jesus is irritated against us, Mary immediately appeases him. Plutarch relates that Antipater wrote a long letter to Alexander the Great, filled with accusations against his mother Olympia. Having read the letter, Alexander said, Antipater does not know that a single tear of my mother suffices to cancel six hundred letters of accusation. We also may imagine that Jesus thus answers the accusations presented against us by the devil when Mary prays for us. Does not Lucifer know that a prayer of my mother in favor of a sinner suffices to make me forget all accusations of offenses committed against me? The following example is a proof of this. Example This example is not recorded in any book but was told me by a priest, a friend of mine, as having happened to himself. This priest was hearing confessions in a church. To compromise no one, I do not mention the name of the place, though the penitent gave him leave to publish the fact. When a young man stood before him, who seemed to wish, but at the same time to fear, to go to confession, the father, after looking at him several times, at length called him and asked him if he wished to confess. He replied that he did, but as his confession was likely to be very long, he begged to be taken to a private room. The penitent there began by saying that he was a foreigner and of noble birth, but who had led such a life that he did not believe it possible that God would pardon him. Besides the other innumerable shameful crimes and murders he had committed, he said that, having entirely despaired of salvation, he committed sins no longer from inclination, but expressly to outrage God, out of the hatred he bore him. He said, amongst other things, that he wore a crucifix, and that he beat it out of disrespect, and that that very morning, only a short time before, he had communicated sacrilegiously, and for what purpose? It was that he might trample the sacred particle under his feet, and he had indeed already received it, 
and had only been prevented from executing his horrible design by the people who would have seen him. He then consigned the sacred particle in a piece of paper to the confessor. Having done this, he said that, passing before the church, he had felt himself strongly impelled to enter it, that, unable to resist, he had done so. After entering, he was seized with great remorse of conscience, and at the same time a sort of confused and irresolute desire to confess his sin, and hence the reason for which he stood before the confessional. But while standing there, his confusion and diffidence were so great that he endeavored to go away, but it seemed to him as if someone held him there by a force. In the meantime, he said, Father, you called me, and now I am here making my confession, and I know not how. The father then asked him if he ever practiced any devotion during the time, meaning towards the Blessed Virgin. For such conversions only come through the powerful hands of Mary. None, father, devotions indeed. I looked on myself as damned. But reflect again, said the father. Father, I did nothing, he repeated. But putting his hand to his breast to uncover it, he remembered that he wore the scapular of Mary's dolors. Ah, my son, said the confessor, dost thou not see it is our blessed lady who has obtained thee so extraordinary a grace? And know, he added, that to her this church is dedicated. On hearing this, the young man was moved and began to grieve and at the same time to weep. Then, continuing the confession of his sins, his compunction increased to such a degree that with a loud sob he fell fainting at the father's feet. When he had been restored to consciousness, he finished his confession, and the father, with the greatest consolation, absolved him and sent him back to his own country, entirely contrite, and resolved to change his life, giving the father full permission to preach and publish everywhere the great mercy that Mary had shown him. Prayer O Holy Mother of God, and my mother, Mary, Thou wast so deeply interested in my salvation as to offer to death the dearest object of Thy heart, Thy beloved Jesus. Since then Thou didst so much desire to see me saved, it is right that, after God, I should place all my hopes in Thee. O oh, yes, most blessed Virgin, I do indeed entirely confide in Thee, Ah, by the merit of the great sacrifice which thou didst offer this day to God, the sacrifice of the life of thy Son, entreat him to have pity on my poor soul, for which this immaculate Lamb did not refuse to die on the cross. I could desire, O my Queen, to offer my poor heart to God on this day, in imitation of thee, but I fear that, seeing it so sordid and loathsome, he may refuse it. But if thou offerest it to him, he will not reject it. He is always pleased with and accepts the offerings presented to him by your most pure hands. To thee then, O Mary, do I this day present myself, miserable as I am. To thee do I give myself without reserve. Do thou offer me as thy servant, together with Jesus, to the Eternal Father, and beseech him, by the merits of thy Son, and for thy sake, to accept me, 
and take me as his own. Ah, my sweetest mother, for the love of thy sacrificed son, help me always and at all times, and abandon me not. Never permit me to lose by my sins this most amiable Redeemer, whom on this day thou didst offer with so bitter grief to the cruel death of the cross. Remind him that I am thy servant, that in thee I have placed all my hope. Say, in fine, that thou willest my salvation, and he will certainly graciously hear thee. Discourse 7. The Assumption of Mary. August 15th. Death being the punishment of sin, it would seem that the Divine Mother, all holy and exempt as she was from the slightest stain, should also have been exempt from death, and from encountering the misfortunes to which the children of Adam, infected by the poison of sin, are subject. But God was pleased that Mary should in all things resemble Jesus, and as the son died, it was becoming that the mother should also die, because, moreover, he wished to give the just an example of the precious death prepared for them. He willed that even the most blessed virgin should die, but by a sweet and happy death. Let us, therefore, now consider how precious was Mary's death. First, on account of the special favors by which it was accompanied. Secondly, on account of the manner in which it took place. 1. There are three things that render death bitter, attachment to the world, remorse for sins, and the uncertainty of salvation. The death of Mary was entirely free from these causes of bitterness, and was accompanied by three special graces, which rendered it precious and joyful. She died as she had lived, entirely detached from the things of the world. She died in the most perfect peace. She died in the certainty of eternal glory. And in the first place, there can be no doubt that attachment to earthly things renders the death of the worldly bitter and miserable. As the Holy Ghost says, O death, how bitter is the remembrance of thee to a man who hath peace in his possessions. But because the saints die detached from the things of the world, their death is not bitter, but sweet, lovely, and precious. That is to say, as St. Bernard remarks, worth purchasing at any price, however great. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Who are they who, being already dead, die? They are those happy souls who pass into eternity already detached and, so to say, dead to all affection for terrestrial things, and who, like St. Francis of Assisi, found in God alone all their happiness, and with him could say, My God and my all. But what soul was ever more detached from earthly goods and more united to God than the beautiful soul of Mary? She was detached from her parents, for at the age of three years, when children are most attached to them and stand in the greatest need of their assistance, Mary, with the greatest intrepidity, left them and went to shut herself up in the temple to attend to God alone. She was detached from riches, contenting herself always to live poor and supporting herself with the labor of her own hands. She was detached from honors, loving and humble and abject life, 
though the honors due to a queen were hers, as she was descended from the kings of Israel. The Blessed Virgin herself revealed to St. Elizabeth of Hungary that when her parents left her in the temple, she resolved in her heart to have no father and to love no other good than God. St. John saw Mary represented in that woman, clothed with the sun, who held the moon under her feet. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Interpreters explain the moon to signify the goods of this world, which, like her, are uncertain and changeable. Mary never had these goods in her heart, but always despised them and trampled them under her feet, living in this world as a solitary turtle dove in a desert, never allowing her affection to center itself on any earthly thing, so that of her it was said, The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. And elsewhere, Who is she that goeth up by the desert? When, when the abbot Rupert says, Thus didst thou go up by the desert, that is, having a solitary soul. Mary, then, having lived always and in all things detached from the earth and united to God alone, death was not bitter, but, on the contrary, very sweet and dear to her, since it united her more closely to God in heaven by an eternal bond. Peace of mind renders the death of the just precious. Sins committed during life are the worms that so cruelly torment and gnaw the hearts of poor dying sinners who, about to appear before the d divine tribunal, see themselves at that moment surrounded by their sins, which terrify them and cry out, according to St. Bernard, We are thy works, we will not abandon thee. Mary certainly could not be tormented at death by any remorse of conscience, for she was always pure and always free from the least shade of actual or original sin, so much so that of her it was said, Thou art all fair, O my love, and there is not a spot in thee. From the moment that she had the use of reason, that is, from the first moment of her immaculate conception in the womb of St. Anne, she began to love God with all her strength, and continued to do so always advancing more and more throughout her whole life in love and perfection. And all her thoughts, desires, and affections were of and for God alone. She never uttered a word, made a movement, cast a glance, or breathed, but for God in His glory, and never departed a step or detached herself for a single moment from the divine love. Ah, how did all the lovely virtues that she had practiced during her life surround her blessed bed in the happy hour of her death. That faith so constant, that loving confidence in God, that unconquerable patience in the midst of so many sufferings, that humility in the midst of so many privileges, that modesty, that meekness, that tender compassion for souls, that insatiable zeal for the glory of God, and above all, that most perfect love towards Him, with that entire conformity to the divine will. All, in a word, surrounded her, and consoling her, said, We are thy works, we will not abandon thee. Our Lady and Mother, we are all daughters of thy beautiful heart. Now that thou art leaving this miserable life, we will not leave thee. 
we will also go and be thy eternal accompaniment and honor in paradise where by our means thou wilt reign as queen of all men and of all angels finally the certainty of eternal salvation renders death sweet death is called a passage for by death we pass from a short to an eternal life and as the dread of those is indeed great who die in doubt of their salvation and who approach the solemn moment with well-grounded fear of passing into eternal death thus on the other hand the joy of the saints is indeed great at the close of life hoping with some security to go and possess god in heaven The Glories of Mary will continue on the second side of the tape. We now continue with The Glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. A nun of the Order of St. Teresa when the doctor announced to her her approaching death was so filled with joy that she exclaimed oh how is it sir that you announce to me such welcome news and demand no fee st lawrence justinian being at the point of death and perceiving his servants weeping round him said away away with your tears this is no time to mourn go elsewhere to weep if you would remain with me rejoice as i rejoice in seeing the gates of heaven open to me, that I may be united to my God. Thus also a St. Peter of Alcantara, a St. Aloysius Gonzaga, and so many other saints, on hearing that death was at hand, burst forth into exclamations of joy and gladness. And yet they were not certain of being in possession of divine grace, nor were they secure of their own sanctity, as Mary was. But what joy must the Divine Mother have felt in receiving the news of her approaching death? She who had the fullest certainty of the possession of Divine Grace, especially after the angel Gabriel had assured her that she was full of it, and that she already possessed God. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Thou hast found grace. And well did she herself know that her heart was continually burning with Divine Love so that, as St. Bernardine de Bustis says, Mary, by a singular privilege, granted to no other saint, loved and was always actually loving God in every moment of her life, with such ardor that St. Bernard declares it required a continued miracle to preserve her life in the midst of such flames. Of Mary it had already been asked in the sacred canticles, who is she that goeth up by the desert as a pillar of smoke, of aromatical spices, of myrrh and frankincense and all the powders of the perfumer? Her entire mortification typified by the myrrh, her fervent prayers signified by the incense, and all her holy virtues united to her perfect love for God kindled in her a flame so great that her beautiful soul wholly devoted to and consumed by divine love, arose continually to God as a pillar of smoke, breathing forth on every side a most sweet odor. Such smoke, nay even such a pillar of smoke, 
says the abbot Rupert, hast thou, O blessed Virgin Mary, breathed forth a sweet odor to the Most High. Eustachius expresses it in still stronger terms. A pillar of smoke, because burning interiorly as a holocaust with the flame of divine love, she sent forth a most sweet odor. As the loving virgin lived, so did she die. As divine love gave her life, so did it cause her death. For the doctors and holy fathers of the church generally say she died of no other infirmity than pure love. St. Ildefonsus says that Mary either ought not to die, or only die of love. Part 2 But now let us see how her blessed death took place. After the ascension of Jesus Christ, Mary remained on earth to attend to the propagation of the faith. Hence the disciples of our Lord had recourse to her, and she solved their doubts, comforted them in their persecutions, and encouraged them to labor for the divine glory and the salvation of redeemed souls. She willingly remained on earth, knowing that such was the will of God for the good of the church. But she could not but feel the pain of being far from the presence and sight of her beloved Son, who had ascended to heaven. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, said the Redeemer. Where anyone believes his treasure and his happiness to be, here he always holds the love and desires of his heart fixed. If Mary, then, loved no other good than Jesus, he being in heaven, all her desires were in heaven. Tauler says that heaven was the cell of the heavenly and most blessed Virgin Mary, for, being there with all her desires and affections, she made it her continual abode. Her school was eternity, for she was always detached and free from temporal possessions. Her teacher was divine truth, for her whole life was guided by this alone. Her book was the purity of her own conscience, in which she always found occasion to rejoice in the Lord. Her mirror was the divinity, for she never admitted any representations into her soul but such as were transformed into and clothed with God, that so she might always conform herself to his will. Her ornament was devotion, for she attended solely to her interior sanctification, and was always ready to fulfill the divine commands. Her repose was union with God, for he alone was her treasure and the resting place of her heart. The Most Holy Virgin consoled her loving heart during this painful separation by visiting, as it is related, the holy places of Palestine where her son had been during his life. She frequently visited at one time the stable at Bethlehem where her son was born, at another the workshop of Nazareth where her son had lived so many years poor and despised, now the Garden of Gethsemane where her son began his passion, then the Praetorium of Pilate, where he was scourged, and the spot on which he was crowned with thorns. But she visited most frequently the Mount of Calvary, where her son expired, and the Holy Sepulchre, in which she had finally left him. Thus did the most loving mother soothe the pains of her cruel exile. But this could not be enough to satisfy her heart which was unable to find perfect repose in this world. 
Hence she was continually sending up sighs to her lord, exclaiming with David, Who will give me wings like a dove, and I will fly and be at rest? Who will give me wings like a dove, that I may fly to my God, and there find my repose? As the heart panteth after the fountains of water, so my soul panteth after thee, my God. As the wounded stag pants for the fountain, so does my soul, wounded by thy love, O my God, desire and sigh after thee. Yes, indeed, the sighs of this holy turtle-dove could not but deeply penetrate the heart of her God, who indeed so tenderly loved her. The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Wherefore, being unwilling to defer any longer the so much desired consolation of his beloved, behold, he graciously hears her desire and calls her to his kingdom. Cadrinus, Nesiphorus, and Metaphratus relate that some days before her death our Lord sent her the archangel Gabriel, the same that announced to her that she was the blessed woman chosen to be the mother of God. My lady and queen, said the angel, God has already graciously heard thy holy desires, and has sent me to tell thee to prepare thyself to leave the earth, for he wills thee in heaven. Come then to take possession of thy kingdom, for I and all its holy inhabitants await and desire thee. On this happy annunciation, what else could our most humble and most holy virgin do, but with the most profound humility, answer in the same words in which she answered St. Gabriel when he announced to her that she was to become the mother of God? Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Behold, she answered again, the slave of the Lord. He in his pure goodness chose me and made me his mother. He now calls me to paradise. I did not deserve that honor, nor do I deserve this. But since he is pleased to show in my person his infinite liberality, behold, I am ready to go where he pleases. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. May the will of my God and Lord be ever accomplished in me. After receiving this welcome intelligence, she imparted it to St. John. We may well imagine with what grief and tender feelings he heard the news. He who for so many years had attended upon her as a son, and had enjoyed the heavenly conversation of this most holy mother. She then once more visited the holy places of Jerusalem, tenderly taking leave of them, and especially of Mount Calvary, where her beloved son had died. She then retired into her poor cottage, there to prepare for death. During this time the angels did not cease their visits to their beloved queen, consoling themselves with the thought that they would soon see her crowned in heaven. Many authors, such as Andrew of Crete, St. John Damascene, Euthymius, assert that before her death the apostles, and also many disciples who were scattered in different parts of the world, were miraculously assembled in Mary's room, and that when she saw all these her dear children in her presence, she thus addressed them, My beloved children, through love for you and to help you, my son left me on this earth. The holy faith is now spread throughout the world. Already the fruit of the divine seed is grown up. Hence, my Lord, 
seeing that my assistance on earth is no longer necessary, and compassionating my grief in being separated from him, has graciously listened to my desire to quit this life and to go to see him in heaven. Do you remain, then, to labor for his glory? If I leave you, my heart remains with you. The great love I bear you I shall carry with me and always preserve. I go to paradise to pray for you. Who can form an idea of the tears and lamentations of the holy disciples at this sad announcement and at the thought that soon they were to be separated from their mother? All then weeping exclaimed, Then, O Mary, thou art already about to leave us. It is true that this world is not a place worthy of or fit for thee, and as for us, we are unworthy to enjoy the society of a mother of God. But remember, thou art our mother. Hitherto thou hast enlightened us in our doubts. Thou hast consoled us in our afflictions. Thou hast been our strength in persecutions. And now, how canst thou abandon us, leaving us alone in the midst of so many enemies and so many conflicts, deprived of thy consolation? We have already lost on earth Jesus, our Master and Father, who has ascended into heaven. Until now we have con found consolation in thee, our Mother. And now how canst thou also leave us orphans without father or mother? Our own sweet lady, either remain with us or take us with thee. Thus St. John Damascene writes, No, my children, thus sweetly the loving queen began to speak. This is not according to the will of God. Be satisfied to do that which he has decreed for me and for you. To you it yet remains to labor on earth for the glory of your Redeemer and to make up your eternal crown. I do not leave you to abandon you, but to help you still more in heaven by my intercession with God. Be satisfied. I commend the Holy Church to you. I commend redeemed souls to you. Let this be my last farewell, and the only remembrance I leave you. Execute it if you love me. Labor for the good of souls and for the glory of my Son, for one day we shall meet again in paradise, never more for all eternity to be separated. She then begged them to give burial to her body after death, blessed them, and desired St. John, as St. John Damascene relates, to give after her death two of her gowns to two virgins who had served her for some time. She then decently composed herself on her poor little bed, where she laid herself to await death, and with it the meeting of the divine spouse, who shortly was to come and take her with him to the kingdom of the blessed. Behold, she already feels in her heart a great joy, the forerunner of the coming of the bridegroom, which inundates her with an unaccustomed and novel sweetness. The holy apostles seeing that Mary was already on the point of leaving this world, renewing their tears, all threw themselves on their knees around her bed. Some kissed her holy feet. Some sought a special blessing from her. Some recommended a particular want, and all wept bitterly, for their hearts were pierced with grief at being obliged to separate themselves for the rest of their lives from their beloved lady. And she, the most loving mother compassionated all and consoled each one.
to some promising her patronage, blessing others with particular affection, and encouraging others to the work of the conversion of the world. Especially she called St. Peter to her, and as head of the church and vicar of her son, recommended to him in a particular manner the propagation of the faith, promising him at the same time her especial protection in heaven. But more particularly did she call St. John to her, who more than any other was grieved at this moment when he had to part with his holy mother, and the most gracious lady, remembering the affection and attention with which this holy disciple had served her during all the years she had remained on earth since the death of her son, said, My own John, speaking with the greatest tenderness, My own John, I thank thee for all the assistance that thou hast afforded me. My son, be assured of it, I shall not be ungrateful. If I now leave thee, I go to pray for thee. Remain in peace in this life until we meet again in heaven, where I await thee. Never forget me. In all thy wants, call me to thy aid, for I will never forget thee, my beloved son. Son, I bless thee. I leave thee my blessing. Remain in peace. Farewell. But already the death of Mary is at hand. Divine love, with its vehement and blessed flames, had already almost entirely consumed the vital spirits. The heavenly phoenix is already losing her life in the midst of this fire. Then the host of angels come in choirs to meet her, as if to be ready for the great triumph with which they were to accompany her to paradise. Mary was indeed consoled at the sight of these holy spirits, but was not fully consoled, for she did not yet see her beloved Jesus, who was the whole love of her heart. Hence she often repeated to the angels who descended to salute her, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you will tell him that I languish with love, Holy angels, O fair citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, you come in choirs kindly to console me, and you all console me with your sweet presence. I thank you, but you do not fully satisfy me, for as yet I do not see my son coming to console me. Go, if you love me, return to paradise, and on my part tell my beloved that I languish with love. Tell him to come and to come quickly, for I am dying with the vehemence of my desire to see him. But behold, Jesus is now come to take his mother to the kingdom of the blessed. It was revealed to St. Elizabeth that her son appeared to Mary before she expired with his cross in his hands to show the special glory he had obtained by the redemption, having by his death made acquisition of that great creature who for all eternity was to honor him more than all men and angels. St. John Damascene relates that our Lord himself gave her the Viaticum, saying with tender love, Receive, O my mother, from my hands that same body that thou gavest to me. And the mother, having received with the greatest love that last communion, with her last breath said, My son, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. I commend to thee this soul, which from the beginning thou didst create rich in so many graces, and by a singular privilege didst preserve from the stain of original sin. I commend to thee my body, 
from which thou didst deign to take thy flesh and blood. I also commend to thee these my beloved children, speaking of the holy disciples who surrounded her. They are grieved at my departure. Do thou, who lovest them more than I do, console them, bless them, and give them strength to do great things for thy glory. The life of Mary, being now at its close, the most delicious music, as St. Jerome relates, was heard in the apartment where she lay. And according to a revelation of St. Bridget, the room was also filled with a brilliant light. The sweet music and the unaccustomed splendor warned the holy apostles that Mary was then departing. This caused them again to burst forth in tears and prayers, and raising their hands with one voice they exclaimed, O Mother, Thou already goest to heaven, Thou leavest us. Give us Thy last blessing, and never forget us, miserable creatures. Mary then, turning her eyes around upon all, as if to bid them a last farewell, said, Adieu, my children, I bless you. Fear not, I will never forget you. And now death came, not indeed clothed in mourning and grief as it does to others, but adorned with light and gladness. But what do we say? Why speak of death? Let us rather say that divine love came and cut the thread of that noble life. And as a light before going out gives a last and brighter flash than ever, so did this beautiful creature, on hearing her son's invitation to follow him, wrapped in the flames of love and in the midst of her amorous sighs, give a last sigh of still more ardent love, and breathing forth her soul, expired. Thus was that great soul, that beautiful dove of the Lord, loosened from the bands of this life. Thus did she enter into the glory of the blessed, where she is now seated, and will be seated queen of paradise for all eternity. Mary then has left this world. She is now in heaven. Thence does this compassionate mother look down upon us who are still in this valley of tears. She pities us, and if we wish it, promises to help us. Let us always beseech her by the merits of her blessed death to obtain us a happy death. And should such be the good pleasure of God, let us beg her to obtain us the grace to die on a Saturday, which is a day dedicated in her honor, or on a day of a novena, or within an octave of one of her feasts. For this she has obtained for so many of her clients, and especially for St. Stanislaus Gatska, whom she obtained that he should die on the feast of her Assumption, as Father Bartoli relates in the life of this saint. Example During his lifetime, this holy youth, who was wholly dedicated to the love of Mary, happened on the 1st of August to hear a sermon preached by Father Peter Canisius, in which, exhorting the novices of the society, he urged them all, with the greatest fervor, to live each day as if it were the last of their lives, and the one on which they were to be presented before God's tribunal. After the sermon, St. Stanislaus told his companions that that advice had been for him, in an especial manner, the voice of God, for that he was to die in the course of that very month. It is evident 
from what followed that he said this either because God had expressly revealed it to him, or at least because he gave him a certain internal presentiment of it. Four days afterwards the blessed youth went with Father Emmanuel to St. Mary Major's. The conversation fell on the approaching feast of the Assumption, and the saint said, Father, I believe that on that day a new paradise is seen in paradise, as the glory of the Mother of God, crowned Queen of Heaven, and seated so near to our Lord above the, all the choirs of angels, is seen. And if, as I firmly believe it to be, this festival is renewed every year, I hope to see the next. The glorious martyr St. Lawrence had fallen by lot to St. Stanislaus as his patron for that month, it being customary in the society thus to draw lots for the monthly patrons. It is said that he wrote a letter to his mother Mary, in which he begged her to obtain him the favor of to be present at her next festival in heaven. On the feast of St. Lawrence he received the Holy Communion, and afterwards entreated the saint to present his letter to the Divine Mother, and to support his petition with his intercession that the Most Blessed Virgin might graciously accept and grant it. Towards the close of that very day he was seized with fever, and though the attack was slight, he considered that certainly he had obtained the favor he asked for. This indeed he joyfully expressed, and with a smiling countenance, on going to bed, he said, From this bed I shall never rise again. And speaking to Father Claudius Aquaviva, he added, Father, I believe that St. Lawrence has already obtained me the favor from Mary to be in heaven on the feast of her Assumption. No one, however, took much notice of his words. On the vigil of the feast his illness seemed of little consequence, but the saint assured a brother that he should die that night. Oh, brother, the other answered, it would be a greater miracle to die of so slight an illness than to be cured. Nevertheless, in the afternoon he fell into a death-like swoon. A cold sweat came over him, and he lost all his strength. The superior hastened to him, and Stanislaus entreated him to have him laid on the bare floor, that he might die as a penitent. To satisfy him this was granted. He was laid on a thin mattress on the ground. He then made his confession, and in the midst of the tears of all present received the viaticum. I say of the tears of all present, for when the divine sacrament was brought into the room, his eyes brightened up with celestial joy, and his whole countenance was inflamed with holy love, so that he seemed like a seraph. He also received extreme unction, and in the meanwhile did nothing but constantly raise his eyes to heaven, and lovingly pressed to his heart an image of Mary. A father asked him to what purpose he kept a rosary in his hand, since he could not use it. He replied, It is a consolation to me, for it is something belonging to my mother. Oh, how much greater will your consolation be, added the father, when in a short time you will see her and kiss her hands in heaven. On hearing this, the saint, with his countenance all on fire, raised his hands to express his desire soon to be in her presence. His dear mother then appeared to him, as he himself told those who surrounded him. And shortly afterwards, at the dawn of the day, on the 15th of August, 
with his eyes fixed on heaven, he expired like a saint without the slightest struggle, so much so that it was only on presenting him to the image of the Blessed Virgin and seeing that he made no movement towards it that it was perceived that he was already gone to kiss the feet of his beloved queen in paradise. Prayer O most sweet lady and our mother, thou hast already left the earth and reached thy kingdom, where as queen thou art enthroned above all the choirs of angels, as the church sings, she is exalted above the choirs of angels in the celestial kingdom. We well know that we sinners are not worthy to possess thee in this valley of darkness, but we also know that thou, in thy greatness, hast never forgotten us miserable creatures, and that by being exalted to so great glory, thou hast never lost compassion for us poor children of Adam, nay, even that it is increased in thee. From the high throne, then, to which thou art exalted, Turn, O Mary, thy compassionate eyes upon us, and pity us. Remember also that in leaving this world thou didst promise not to forget us. Look at us and succor us. See in the midst of what tempests and dangers are we constantly, and shall be until the end of our lives. By the merits of thy happy death, obtain us holy perseverance in the divine friendship that we may finally quit this life in God's grace, and thus we also shall one day come to kiss thy feet in paradise, and unite with the blessed spirits in praising thee, and singing thy glories as thou deservest. Amen. Discourse 8 Second Discourse on the Assumption of Mary it would seem right that on this day of the Assumption of Mary to Heaven the Holy Church should rather invite us to mourn than to rejoice, since our sweet Mother has quitted this world and left us deprived of her sweet presence. As St. Bernard says, it seems that we should rather weep than rejoice. But no, the Holy Church invites us to rejoice. Let us all rejoice in the Lord, celebrating a festival in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And justly, for if we love our mother, we ought to congratulate ourselves more upon her glory than on our own private consolation. What son does not rejoice, though on account of it he has to be separated from his mother, if he knows that she is going to take possession of a kingdom? Mary, on this day, is crowned Queen of Heaven, and shall we not keep at a festival and rejoice if we truly love her? Let us rejoice, then, let us all rejoice. And that we may rejoice and be consoled the more by her exaltation, let us consider, first, how glorious was the triumph of Mary when she ascended to heaven, and secondly, how glorious was the throne to which she was there exalted. After Jesus Christ our Savior had completed by his death the work of redemption, the angels ardently desired to possess him in their heavenly country, since they were continually supplicating him in the words of David, Arise, O Lord, into thy resting place, thou and the ark which thou hast sanctified. Come, O Lord, come quickly, now that thou hast redeemed men, come to thy kingdom and dwell with us, and bring with thee the living ark of thy sanctification, thy mother, 
who was the ark which thou didst sanctify by dwelling in her womb. Precisely thus does St. Bernardine make the angels say, Let Mary, thy most holy mother, sanctified by thy conception, also ascend. Our Lord was, therefore, at last pleased to satisfy the desire of these heavenly citizens by calling Mary to paradise. But if it was his will that the ark of the old dispensation should be brought with great pomp into the city of David, and David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord with joyful shouting and with the sound of trumpet, with how much greater and more glorious pomp did he ordain that his mother should enter heaven? The prophet Elias was carried into heaven in a fiery chariot, which, according to interpreters, was no other than a group of angels who bore him off from the earth. But to conduct thee to heaven, O mother of God, says the abbot Rupert, a fiery chariot, chariot was not enough. The whole court of heaven, headed by its king, thy son, went forth to meet and accompany thee. St. Bernardine of Siena is of the same opinion. He says that Jesus, to honor the triumph of his most sweet mother, went forth in his glory to meet and accompany her. St. Anselm also says that it was precisely for this purpose that the Redeemer was pleased to ascend to heaven before his mother. That is, he did so not only to prepare a throne for her in that kingdom, but also that he might himself accompany her with all the blessed spirits, and thus render her entry into heaven more glorious, and such as become one who was his mother. Hence St. Peter Damien, contemplating the splendor of this assumption of Mary into heaven, says that we shall find it more glorious than the ascension of Jesus Christ. For to meet the Redeemer, angels only went forth. But when the Blessed Virgin was assumed to glory, she was met and accompanied by the Lord himself of glory, by the whole blessed company of saints and angels. For this reason, the abbot Guerk supposes the divine word thus speaking, To honor the Father, I descended from heaven. To honor my mother, I reascended there that thus I might be enabled to go forth to meet her and myself accompany her to paradise. Let us now consider how our Savior went forth from heaven to meet his mother. On first meeting her and to console her, he said, Arise, make haste, my love, my dove, my beautiful one, and come, for winter is now past and gone. Come, my own dear mother, my pure and beautiful dove, leave that valley of tears in which for my love thou hast suffered so much. Come from Libanus, my spouse, come from Libanus, come, thou shalt be crowned. Come in, soul and body, to enjoy the recompense of thy holy life. If thy sufferings have been great on earth, far greater is the glory which I have prepared for thee in heaven. Enter, then, that kingdom, and take thy seat near me. Come to receive that crown which I will bestow upon thee as queen of the universe. Behold, Mary already leaves the earth, at which she looks with affection and compassion, with affection remembering the many graces she had there received from her Lord, and with affection and compassion 
because in it she leaves so many poor children surrounded with miseries and dangers. But see, Jesus offers her his hand, and the Blessed Mother already ascends. Already she has passed beyond the clouds, beyond the spheres. Behold her already at the gates of heaven. When monarchs make their solemn entry into their kingdoms, they do not pass through the gates of the capital, for they are removed to make way for them on this occasion. Hence, when Jesus Christ entered paradise, the angels cried out, Lift up your gates, O ye princes, and be lifted up. O eternal gates, and the King of glory shall enter in. Thus also, now that Mary goes to take possession of the kingdom of heaven, the angels who accompany her cry out with those within, Lift up your gates, O ye princes, and be lifted up, O eternal gates, and the Queen of glory shall enter in. Behold, Mary already enters that blessed country, but on her entrance the celestial spirits, seeing her so beautiful and glorious, ask the angels without, as Origen supposes it, with united voices of exultation, Who is this that cometh up from the desert, flowing with delights, leaning upon her beloved? And who can this creature so beautiful be that comes from the desert of the earth, a place of thorns and tribulation? But this one comes pure and rich in virtue, leaning on her beloved Lord, who is so graciously pleased himself to accompany her with so great an honor. Who is she? The angels accompanying her answer, She is the mother of our king. She is our queen and the blessed one among women, full of grace the saint of saints, the beloved of God, the immaculate one, the dove, the fairest of all creatures. Then all the blessed spirits begin to bless and praise her, singing with far more reasons than the Hebrews did to Judith. Thou art the glory of Jerusalem, thou art the joy of Israel, thou art the honor of our people. Ah, our lady and our queen, Thou, then, art the glory of paradise, the joy of our country. Thou art the honor of us all. Be thou ever welcome, be thou ever blessed. Behold thy kingdom, behold us also who are thy servants, ever ready to obey thy commands. All the saints who were in paradise, then, came to welcome her and salute her as their queen. All the holy virgins came. The daughters saw her and declared her most blessed, and they praised her. We, they said, O most blessed lady, are also queens of this kingdom. But thou art our queen, for thou wast the first to give us the great example of consecrating our virginity to God. We all bless and thank thee for it. Then came the holy confessors to salute her as their mistress, who, by her holy life, had taught them so many beautiful virtues. The holy martyrs also came to salute her as their queen, for she, by her great constancy in the sorrows of her son's passion, had taught them, and also by her merits had obtained them strength to lay down their lives for the faith. St. James, the only one of the apostles who was yet in heaven, also came to thank her in the name of all the other apostles for all the comfort and help she had afforded them while she was on earth. 
The prophets next came to salute her, and said, Ah, lady, thou wast the one foreshadowed in our prophecies. The holy patriarchs then came and said, O oh, Mary, it is thou who wast our hope. For thee it was that we sighed with such ardor and for so long a time. But amongst these latter came our first parents, Adam and Eve, to thank her with the greatest affection. Ah, beloved daughter, they said, thou hast repaired the injury which we inflicted on the human race. Thou hast obtained for the world that blessing which we lost by our crime. By thee we are saved, and for it be ever blessed. St. Simeon then came to kiss her feet, and with joy reminded her of the day when he received the infant Jesus from her hands. St. Zachary and St. Elizabeth also came, and again thanked her for that loving visit which, with so great humility and charity, she had paid them in their dwelling, and by which they had received such treasures of grace. St. John the Baptist came with still greater affection to thank her for having sanctified him by her voice. But how must her holy parents, St. Joachim and St. Anne, have spoken when they came to salute her? O oh God, with what tenderness must they have blessed her, saying, Ah, beloved daughter, what a favor it was for us to have such a child! Be thou now our queen, for thou art the mother of our God, and as such we salute and adore thee. But who can ever form an idea of the affection with which her dear spouse, St. Joseph, came to salute her? Who can ever describe the joy which the holy patriarch felt at seeing his spouse so triumphantly enter heaven and made queen of paradise? With what tenderness must he have addressed her? Ah, my lady and spouse, how can I ever thank our God as I ought for having made me thy spouse, thou who art his true mother? Through thee I merited to assist on earth the childhood of the eternal word, to carry him so often in my arms, and to receive so many special graces. Ever blessed be those moments which I spent in life in serving Jesus and thee, my holy spouse. Behold our Jesus. Let us rejoice that he no longer lies in straw and a manger, as we saw him at his birth in Bethlehem. He no longer lives poor and despised in a shop, as he once lived with us in Nazareth. He is no longer nailed to an infamous gibbet, as when he died in Jerusalem for the salvation of the world. But he is seated at the right hand of his Father, as King and Lord of heaven and earth. And now, O my Queen, we shall never more be separated from his feet. We shall there bless him and love him for all eternity. We will continue on the next tape.